Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Uh, Hello. Thank you for joining me this Wednesday, November 15th. Much thanks to Hal Sparks and Marge Halperin, who sat in Monday and Tuesday, allowing me to spend a long weekend with my daughter, which was glorious, and we had tons of fun. Thank you very much to uh, both of those folks. Uh, Ray was here holding down the fort, and he said that uh, Marge was hit with a bunch of trolls, which kind of surprises me. I mean, I know we're going to see more and more of that as we get closer to the election, but generally speaking, uh, people have been pretty well behaved. Am I... Am I cursing myself? Am I jinxing myself? By <laughs> I think I probably am. Anyway, so while I was gone, uh, you guys did not keep a very close eye on Congress. What's going on? Elbows to the kidney? Threats to have a smackdown <laughs> in a Senate committee? You, you to get on the floor. You get up. You get your butt off that seat. Folks, what's going on? Um, is this, is this a natural evolution? I mean, we've seen the crazy rhetoric for a really long time. And the crazy rhetoric, maybe we're getting used to it. Maybe it's not getting enough coverage anymore. But um, there has been some very bad behavior. I remember reading um, Al Franken's book before he resigned. I think it was called something like a giant of the Senate or something like that. And he told uh, the readers that when he first got to the Senate, he was in a hearing and somebody said something that he thought was ridiculous and he rolled his eyes And he said later, Mitch McConnell took him aside and said, you know, this is not the comedy stage. This is the Senate. And we behave with decorum. We don't behave. We don't roll our eyes if somebody says something we don't like. And Al Franken said that he felt that he really had been taken to task, but he felt that Mitch McConnell was doing him actually a favor And that going forward, he tried to always behave with decorum. He he rolled his eyes and Mitch McConnell scolded him after the meeting. We're the Senate. We don't behave like that. And now you've got a senator telling a witness to get his butt off the chair so they can fight you've got a republican congressman saying that kevin mccarthy gave him an elbow to the kidney (laughs) people i leave for just a few days and you just let things get out of hand i expect better from you i expect more from you Uh, I want to, Andy Miles, who's uh, back at the ranch today, uh, he and I have put together 
some interesting sound clips that I think I'm um, I'm going to I'm going to set them up for you. But I think I'm going to just roll through them. The first one is um, Republican congressman from Tennessee, Tim Burchett. And he was you know, he was apparently doing an interview with a reporter from NPR when Kevin McCarthy came up behind him. And as he walked by him, elbowed him to the kidney. And Tim Burchett followed followed McCarthy and was like, dude, you know, like, what are you doing? What the heck was that? And Kevin McCarthy was like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And as he said, you know, McCarthy doesn't go anywhere without security. So, you know, Tim Burchett was like, you know, you're just basically you're just a weasel. He didn't say that, but that was the gist of it. So afterwards, reporters then talked to Kevin McCarthy, and he was like, golly gee whiz, I don't, did I brush by him? I don't know. Uh, if, uh, I don't know anything. Which would hold more water if the same day this happened, Adam Kinzinger hadn't posted a video where he said, sure. I absolutely believe that happened to Tim Burchett because McCarthy did that to me twice. He said, you know, I was like standing in the hall talking to somebody and he walks by. And as he walks by, he like gives you a shoulder check. And, you know, he says, basically, by the time you realize that that it wasn't just an accident, that it was basically an assault. You know, Kevin McCarthy is, you know, gone and again, surrounded by his security and so Kinzinger said, yeah, he, he did it to, that to, to me twice. Ah, so here's what um, I'm going to share with you. <clears throat> um, I'm going to share with you after the incident, you know, Tim Burchett may have followed McCarthy, McCarthy and yelled at him, but Tim Burchett did not make a big deal about it publicly. The NPR reporter who was talking to him at the time reported on what she had just witnessed. So uh, later, Tim Burchett was interviewed by Manu Raju from CNN, and he talked about what happened and made some very pointed remarks about Kevin McCarthy. Later, Kevin McCarthy was asked about it and did the, well, I don't, I just, I don't know. And then somebody said, yeah, but, you know, Mr. McCarthy, Adam Kinzinger kind of said you did the same thing to him. And he was like, who? And they were like, Adam Kinzinger. He was, oh, I, I don't know about Kinzinger. He doesn't know about Adam Kinzinger. And so then I'm going to share with you what Adam Kinzinger did say. And then last but not least, um, Tim Burchett talked about the whole thing with CNN's Caitlin Collins. It is a saga in four sound bites. And it is, it is a reflection of where we are when it comes to governance today. So first thing I'm going to share with you is after the elbow to the kidney, Republican. This is, this is McCarthy. Oh, and by the way, did I mention Tim Burchett? was one of the people who voted to oust McCarthy. <laughs> you think that had anything to do with anything? Think that had anything to do with the elbow to the kidney? So the first thing I'm going to share with you right now is Republican congressman from Tennessee, Tim Burchett, 
talking to CNN's Manu Raju about the elbow to the kidneys. Listen to this. Explain to us what happened with you and Kevin McCarthy. Well, I was doing an interview um, with um, Claudia from NPR, uh, a lovely lady, and she was asking me a question. And, and at that time, I uh, got elbowed in the back, and it kind of caught me off guard because it was a clean shot to the kidneys. And I turned back, and there was there was Kevin. And um, and I, I, for a minute, I was kind of, what the heck just happened? And then I, um, you know, I, I chased after him, of course. He's a... As I've stated many times, he's a he's a bully with seventeen million dollars in a security detail. You know, he's the type of guy that, when you're a kid, would throw a rock over the fence and run home and hide behind his mama's skirt. And he just, you know, he he uh, from behind that kind of stuff. It, you know, that's not the way we handle things in East Tennessee. We, we if we have a problem with somebody, I'm going to look him in the eye and, and talk to him. Okay, so he walked down the hallway, hit you in his el- with his elbow. Yeah, you, you can that- you can go on Claudia's. Twitter account, it, it, it pretty much, um, or X account, it, right. it, it's, it's very accurate. But, okay, so then just explain. So you chased him? What, what do you mean you chased well, him? I just ran after him. I was like, what the heck? You know, why'd you do that? You know, because it was, uh, like I said, it, if you ever been hit in the kidneys, it's a little little different. You don't have to hit very hard to cause a little bit of pain, a lot of pain. And and so I, and he just, of course, um, as he always did, does, he just uh, denies it or I, uh, blame somebody else or something, you know, and it was just a little heated, but I just backed off because there wasn't any, I saw no reason. I wasn't gaining anything from it. Wait, and so everybody saw it, so it didn't really matter. But he responded to you? Yeah, yeah, he just acted like, you know, what are you talking about? You know, who are you to, you know, that kind of thing. And it's just, you know, I think that's that's symptomatic of the problems that he, he's had in his short tenure as speaker and were you face to face when you had this interaction yeah, yeah but there's security detail and i get it they had to, they were doing their job so it wasn't exactly like he didn't he wouldn't turn around and face me he he kept scurrying trying to keep people between me and him okay that's the incident as described by tim burchett now remember A little later, we're going to hear from Adam Kinzinger, who said McCarthy pulled that same crap with him. But first, um, Kevin McCarthy was asked in the hallway about what he did to Tim Burchett. And remember, somebody also, after he does the whole, well, I don't know, I just don't know. Sorry, that was my dick K coming out. Um, He denies it. And then somebody says, well, you know, Adam Kinzinger basically said you did the same thing. And he's like, who? Who? Oh, I don't know about Kinzinger. So uh, let's now hear from the anti-hero, the villain of this piece, Kevin McCarthy. Listen to this. A reporter was interviewing Burchard or something. I guess our shoulders hit because Burchard runs up to me after. I didn't know what he was talking about. Some reporters asked me. I did not run and hit the guy. I did not kidney punch him. I did not shoot anything like that. You didn't shot him. No. I, we're walking through. You, you were at HC5, right? You guys line up along the way there. It was Bruce Wester and I walking out. He must have been interviewing someone. I didn't know it was him or something. I guess our elbows hit as I walked by. I didn't punch anybody. Did he but, 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 no. but, yeah, well, he, I guess it happened because when I was walking back further, I don't say somebody was interviewing me or talking to me, and he comes running up like, why, why, why did you hit me or something like that? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't even know something transpired. But reporters and witnesses said it looked like you. Yeah. there's plenty of room for you to walk, and then you intentionally hit him. There is, okay, not a place. Show me a reporter who saw that. Ask, call what Bruce Westerman. Okay, well, ask Bruce Westerman. Westerman. No, I did not go up. If I hit, if I would hit somebody, they would know I did. 
He said he knew he hit him. He said he, he, said he, he, said he was in pain that you hit him oh, so hard on the kidneys. Oh, come on now. That's what he said. Okay. Oh. That, that's far from that. Congressman, Congressman, Congressman Kinzinger wrote that you pushed him twice while he was in Congress in the chamber. When have I pushed him? Kinzinger said he was in the back railing once and you elbowed him and pushed you him. You said and then Gates. Kinzinger. Kinzinger. Oh, no, I don't, know, I don't know about Kinzinger either. Oh, I don't know. I don't know about Kinzinger. Well, um, Mr. McCarthy, Adam Kinzinger knows about you. You know, he does the Substack now and he's on a book tour. And usually when Adam Kinzinger posts videos, they're only if you're a paying member of his Substack, which while I like to read his stuff, I am not a paying member. But every once in a while, he'll post a video that he thinks is so important. It's not behind a paywall. And, uh, I think in his book, uh, in his book tour, he was in St. Louis when he posted what he himself described as an emergency video. This was an emergency video where he was talking about his experiences with Kevin McCarthy. Listen to this. So today the story came out of Kevin McCarthy elbowing uh, Representative Burchett in the back. And then Burchett chased him and the media got to see it. Uh, guaranteed Kevin had no clue that the media was there watching because he does this stuff like kind of secretly. And I know that because it happened to me two times. So I was on the floor of the house and just minding my own business. And Kevin passes me one time and I just whack, get hit like by his shoulder or something. And I turn around and he had passed. And my initial thought was, you know, kind of defaulting back to when we were friends. I thought he was joking. And then I'm like, I haven't talked to Kevin in forever. We don't like each other. And then it happened again a few weeks or months later. And uh, he'll pass, does the shoulder check thing. And then by the time you realize what happened, his security's behind him and he's gone. And so you're not going to chase him down on the floor of the house. And then he's going to pretend like if he did it, it was an accident or he doesn't know what you're talking about. And so that's his little thing. But the point here is, He's like an emotional third grader. So what happens is when you invest your entire identity in being in Congress and then ultimately becoming speaker, uh, he, he's had some real breakdowns because you think about everything he's had to compromise to get there. So he knew Donald Trump was totally unfit and yet still supported Donald Trump, swallowed some things he probably never thought he would ever have to swallow or ever would swallow. And uh, that starts to wear on you emotionally and mentally. You start to question who you are. You start to question yourself. And now you take that, and I'm not a psychiatrist, but I I would assume that's projecting then. You're lashing out at others and being mad at them. In my case, he was mad because I was calling him out and calling out the truth that I'm sure was really bothering him that he sold out with Burchett. You know, Burchett voted to get rid of him from the speakership and has really spoken out against him. And there's just this like emotional thing that builds up in Kevin and he releases it like a third grader does just like with physical hit or like trying to intimidate you physically. But we're grownups. The the last person in the world I'm intimidated by myself is Kevin McCarthy. And apparently that's the same with Burchett because he chased him down. Apparently that's the same with Burchett because he chased him down. Uh, Adam Kinsinger, who? I don't know. I don't know about Kinzinger. Uh, Adam Kinzinger, if you all look up his Substack and want to see the whole video, he goes on to um, use this as a way to offer a life lesson 
that it is a really bad idea to wrap your identity solidly around the job you have, uh, because that's a recipe for disaster. Some of the most talented people I have ever known have, um, well, of course, I come from broadcasting uh, where people get fired for no reason at all. But it is a really bad idea to have your whole identity be your job because you can't count on your job. You've got to have something within you that is more important than all of the exterior stuff. That was the life lesson that Adam Kinzinger shared as he as he finished that video today. So, oh, we're not done with this story yet. No, no, no. Um, Tim Burchett, the Republican from Tennessee who got the kidney punch, chased McCarthy down. The gentleman we started our story with, he was um, on uh, with Caitlin Collins on CNN last night, and he had more to say about this story. Listen to this. Do you believe this had something to do with the fact that you did vote to oust him as House Speaker? Absolutely, ma'am. There's only eight of us. There's 435 congressmen. I'm standing in a hallway, and then um, and then he he gives he gave at least four different explanations. One, he said he was brushing me aside. Another one, he said he didn't see me. I wasn't there. Another one, he said um, he, he said something else. And then the final one, he said if I, if I'd have hit him, he'd have known it. That kind of thing. You know, I mean, it's just it's just pathetic, is what it is. And I, like I said, I, I'm not the one. I haven't commented on it on Twitter. I haven't put it out on my Twitter account. It was done by NPR, the lady at NPR. So I was just um, yeah, you know, he, answering the questions from the reporters like yourself about it. It was just an unfortunate situation. He said if he had kidney punched someone, they would be on the ground. I mean, Congressman, we've had you on here before. We've talked about what's going on on Capitol Hill. Republicans today did not exactly cover themselves in glory between this playing out, what happened with Senator Mullen, what happened with Chairman Comer calling <laughs> calling a Congress, a fellow congressman a smurf in a hearing. I mean, this is pretty juvenile stuff for a bunch of lawmakers. This is not, not embarrassing for House Republicans and Republican well, senators. I- I can't speak for the rest of them, and I can't speak for Kevin McCarthy, but I think it's indicative of the type of person that he is and and what he's shown. is you know, in the past, he made fun of me for praying over my decision on what to do about him, and, and today he he walked by, and it was obviously the lady from NPR put it out on Twitter, and I think it had over four, mi- four million views, if you can believe that. That's pretty much viral, I would say. And then, you know, he denied it, but then he said he was going to call me and talk to me about it. Did he call you? I'm, Heck no, he didn't call me. You know that. <laughs> Kevin McCarthy, the more we learn about this guy, uh, the more we wonder how he lasted as long as he did. By the way, they asked Burchett if he was going to um, file a, an, a congressional ethics investigation into Kevin McCarthy for this. And he said, no, he wasn't going to to ask for that. <laughs> but as it turns out, he didn't have to. Uh, perennial pain in McCarthy's side, Matt Gates has gone uh, to the Congressional Ethics Investigatory Body, and he has asked them to look into this alleged physical assault on Burchett. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, of course, Kevin McCarthy at one point was asked about that and sort of poo-pooed the whole thing. Um, 
can you know? Can you imagine getting Matt Gates and Kevin McCarthy in a room together? Whew. No love lost between those two. Steve from the Gold Coast is calling in. Hey, Steve, how are you today? Fine, thank you. Uh, and I wanted to make a couple of points. Uh, and I, I too, I think that this is you know tremendously embarrassing for us as a country. Uh, oh. I mean, it's it's bad enough that we are already the laughing stocks in, in terms of what's transpired in the last few years. But this is just add on. I mean, uh, congressmen, for heaven's sakes, are not supposed to behave like this. And and I mean, in some ways, I, I'd say that okay, this is something that Republicans have bought on themselves. They've created this hostile environment and this kind of nonsensical juvenile. Steve? Oh, Steve, we had this problem last time we talked to Steve, though, he kept going away. Um, Steve, if you um, if you can hear us and you may have shut your radio off, um, give us a call back. And because, oh, she's back already. Hey, Steve, you got to stay away from that mute button, baby. Yeah, don't know what happened there. Um, so, uh, yes, I mean, like I said, I mean, it's deteriorated to this in part. I mean, the Republicans have created this kind of atmosphere, and then obviously it's going to come back to bite them. So, I mean, there's not much love lost in that regard. I mean, but, you know, when it rises to the level of the Senate, this is supposed to be the higher house, the house of mature people delivering I things. I mean, for God's sake, this is not Aaron Burr and Hamilton, for heaven's sakes. This isn't 200 years ago. Or maybe ago. it is. Step outside and shoot each other. Well, yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, you know, it would deteriorate to, to this kind of thing. And, and again, it, it creates uh, this environment in which we're perceived as a laughing stock rather than this shining city on a hill, which mm-hmm. is what America always was. Look, America, other countries, you see these videos of, you know, people throwing chairs at each other and giant rumbles in their parliaments. That's not what America was. We were always looked at. As yeah, we always used to see those done. videos and laugh. Oh, oh, oh those poor countries. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the fact is that this is part and parcel uh, a result of the fact that you have to hate the other side now, or even the people in your own party. There was a time, I'm old enough to remember when Tip O'Neill would drink with Republicans, including the uh, the President of the United States. Uh, you know, just to go out and have a drink, you know, the, you come mm-hmm. by over here, I'll come by the White House. And because they did not hate each other, they disagreed right. with one another, but they did not have to hate. Today, you have to hate the other side. And, and this is a, an extension of that. And the other thing I did want to comment on, I, you know, with all due respect to, to Marge Halpern yesterday, I mean, I listened to part of the show, I even called in. I, I mean, people disagreeing with her perspective on Democratic politics, I don't think is trolling her. There are a lot of people who are mainstream Democrats, who are independents, and we just can't dismiss them. And, and they're well, I wasn't I wasn't around. I was still like, flying home from New York. I just a friend of mine said that they listened and they. They said, oh, she had a lot of trolls, and that's – I was just basing it on that. I did not listen. I, I, yeah, I don't I, know. I, and, I could be wrong, and, and I could be wrong because I didn't listen to the entire broadcast. I just – I tuned in for about an hour, uh, and there was a caller who I took her to task with, with regard to some of her beliefs, and I called in. We disagreed on a couple of things. I was civil. At least I hope I was. Um, but, uh, again, we, we can't just simply as Democrats have this view that uh, we don't care what independents think and we don't care what middle-of-the-road Democrats think going into 2024. No, we have to care. We can't just say we're going to change their views or marginalize their views and say it, it doesn't matter what they think. No, it does matter because they vote. And I yeah. think that that's where you know, the difference was. 
Okay. Well, uh, thanks. Thanks for that. It's always good to get several perspectives. I appreciate that call, Steve. A real quick. uh, We don't have a lot of time, but Dave from Hoffman Estates is calling and I want to get him on the air. Uh, Hey, Dave, how are you? Hey, Joan. Welcome back. Yeah, that uh, stuff with uh, with McCarthy and and these other the Republicans at their finest hours there. You remember back a few years ago when uh, it's it's in their blood, I guess, because do you remember when? Representative Michael Grimm threatened to throw that uh, reporter over the balcony in the Capitol building. Oh, he said, God. I'll break you in half like a boy. And then, the, and then uh, another one was uh, on that eve of the Montana special election where the then GOP nominee Greg Gianforti had body slammed that reporter, breaking his glasses. Yeah. And then, and then the good old Republican fashion Gianforti's spokesperson blamed the reporter. <laughs> Yeah. Well. So, yep. Okay. All right. I guess there is some you know, precedent. <laughs> you know, that, that's just a couple that I remembered. I used to have to, you know, I used to keep up on some of the stuff, but I got rid of all of those notes about a week ago. You know, from since all the way back to '09 and that. But uh, the um, anyway, there's, I'm sure there've been a couple, but these couple came to mind. You know, you know them in their finest hour. You know that yeah. the bully, the bullying tactics. Oh, All right. okay, okay. I just thought I'd share that with you, Joan. Have Thank a good you, Dave. One. I appreciate it. We Thanks are right going to take a break, and we're going to talk about endangered species when we come right back after this. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. We're going to switch gears, and this is part of politics, but a very, very different politics from the um, fisticuffs in Congress these days. We're going to talk about endangered species and the Endangered Species Act. Uh, There is a, a, a volume two that has just been released recently, the Codex of the Endangered Species Act. And uh, joining us now is Dr. Lowell Baer, who is an expert on endangered species and the author of this volume two about the Endangered Species Act. Dr. Baer, thank you so much for being here. Well, I'm looking forward to it, Joan. Me Um, too. I do want to make one correction. Volume one just came out. And volume two will come out in about uh, two weeks. Oh, okay. I, I misunderstood. I thought volume right. one had been been out for a while and volume two. Oh, no. So when is volume two no, going to be out. released? Do you have a date? I think it's, I want to say, I don't have a calendar in front of me, but I want to say December 5th. Okay. 5th or 6th. It's okay. the first week of oh. December. Okay, great. And then, um, and, then, and then volume three comes out April 22nd of next year, which is the, the uh, first day next year. The, the what day? Uh, Earth, it's uh, the oh, uh, Earth, Earth Day. day. I, yeah. Earth I thought, Day. December I thought you said 22nd. birthday, and I was wondering I'm whose sorry. birthday it was. <laughs> yeah. No, it's April 22nd of next year. You know, we talk on this show um, about a lot of politics, a lot of what goes on in state houses and on Capitol Hill. But we also talk about the other 
societal societal issues that touch on how we govern ourselves, things like climate change, things like, um, you know, uh, clean drinking water. We One of the things we haven't touched on for quite a while uh, is the Endangered Species Act. So let's let's start at the very beginning. What is the okay. Endangered Species Act? Well, it was an act uh, of Congress passed in 1973, almost unanimously. It was unanimous in the Senate, only four dissenting votes in the House. And it was, it was signed by President Nixon on uh, December 28, uh, 1973. And basically the bottom line of the act is that all species, whatever, they're, whatever they are, plants, animals, um, 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 insects, um, uh, aquatic species, fish, reptiles, and so forth, um, uh, are protected. Those that are designated as in crisis or um, uh, needing uh, protection so they would not go extinct uh, were protected by the federal government. That's what, basically what the act says. And what was it? What was going on back then under Nixon's administration that made people start to sit up and take notice about this issue? Well, Joan, it really started back in the '60s. The '60s and the '70s were a period of of great, great uh, activity in this country when the consumers sat up and became aware of uh, of a lot of ills going on uh, uh, that resulted in acts of Congress that related as you mentioned earlier, to clean air, clean water, um, uh, and so forth. And the Endangered Species Act was one of those several acts that protected our natural resources. Um, There was a great amount of of citizen activity that that got the legislation passed, 68 different pieces of legislation in the 60s and 70s who related not only to the environment, but to consumer protection um, uh, on everything from cars to baby baby uh, carriages and so forth. It was a great, great period of 20 years of, of um, circumspect uh, by the, the, the uh, citizens of this country to protect themselves and, and nature around them. So where do things stand today? Ha- is, well, has it been updated? Has it been revised? Does it Does it need to be? Well, uh, the answer, uh, there's no direct answer to that. Um, it, there have been only three amendments, major amendments, that made that were substantive since then. The last one is 1988. Congress has become so uh, um, dysfunctional yeah. as, relates to, as it relates to um, the environment, so terribly dysfunctional that the the two agencies that enforce the Endangered Species Act have gone the route of regulations in order to keep the act contemporary with uh, uh, contemporary issues. For example, 50 years ago, Joan, uh, Congress, uh, nor did anyone have the vision of, of, of climate change, mm-hmm. of invasive species, of uh, let's see, climate change, invasive species, uh, 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 the, the foreign trade uh, in, in animals and, and reptiles, turtles and everything uh, that, was, that was illegal. And so um, there was an act passed, the first act, 
uh, of endangered species was packed in 66. It was updated again in 69. And then the best parts of both of those acts were consolidated into the current act of 1973. But it's been kept current and uh, kept up with the demands of society and balancing the needs of commerce with and, and, and uh, growth, economic growth, with the needs of nature and nature's protection. Mm-hmm. And um, um, uh, it, but, but it's been through the regulatory route because we, Congress can't, you can't get anything done with Congress. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that, so it's contemporary. It's contemporary only to the extent that the, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the uh, 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 National Marine Fisheries Service that handles marine mammals under the act uh, have kept it current in that regard. There's still a lot of strife over it. There's still a lot of bad blood over some of the early enforcement measures that Congress um, had a blind eye to. And uh, it took about 20 to 30 years until the Clinton administration for the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service to recognize they needed to go to the regulatory route in order to stay up with contemporary issues and demands. I vaguely recall um, when this was first getting off the ground, there were arguments being made by people that um, it was absolutely normal for species to go extinct. And that's just how the, you know, the universe works and that we um, didn't need to do anything to protect a species. If it couldn't survive on its own in the modern world, then, you know, then it wasn't a good fit. I haven't read those kinds of arguments recently. Does that kind of sentiment still exist? Well, it exists with the flat Earth Society people. Uh, if you if you get if you know what I mean, uh, people, uh, uh, industry and commerce. A lot of folks in industry and commerce don't want the act. Don't want to have to deal with the act, and that's what they would say. But the truth of the matter is, it's man's actions um, and man's um, despoiling of the natural resources of this country that have caused the act to be uh, uh, critical to our future. Mm. Um, uh, 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 and we have constant fights still uh, in Congress. Uh, many congressmen there, uh, this current Congress alone has had over 600 bills introduced that would either destroy the act or dumb it down so much it would be meaningless or to totally repeal it. I mean, they're constantly fighting. We're constantly fighting to keep the act alive and current. And it's constantly under attack by Congress, by one section of Congress, I might add. And what Uh, section of Congress is that by any chance? That's the Republican section. Because I'm assuming that this is all having to do with money. If I want to build a parking garage and I discover that some endangered honeybee, uh, this is the only place within 150 miles that they can find pollen, then that messes up my plans and potentially costs me money. Is is the money the bottom line? It sure is. You've you've identified it, Joan, very perceptively. It's always... Money versus the environment. That's the constant 
battle back and forth. Um, your and, your and, volume and, one. And, and I must, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask you to expound a little bit on uh, the codex Codex of the Endangered Species Act, Volume One, the first fifty years. What what exactly do you cover? In addition to uh, what I'm assuming is the evolution and of the laws about endangered species. Well, it, yes, it's primarily a historical analysis of 50 years of of the evolution of the act being forced by keeping um, a balance between nature's needs and industry's needs, and um, it goes into great detail of the 50-year battle, really, that continues on um, over uh, protecting our species and those um, that really don't care and have a blind eye. The courts uh, took a very, very vocal role in it, started in 1978 with the snail darter case, and they've continued to play a role in the interpretation and application of the act. Um, but the regulations, moreover, um, are fraught with um, people attempting to challenge them, uh, to get them repealed, etc. And it just seems like every regulation that is passed ends up in a court battle somewhere. Yeah, um, it, it definitely. It's, it's, it's brutal. It's brutal. I know you opened your program by saying you you, you know you primarily focus on. Uh, federal and state um, um, issues and and the like, and and this would be a nice relief from that. But unfortunately, <laughs> this is right. This is right in the middle of, of the uh, of the uh, the fight ring, if you will. Yeah, uh, I spoke too is, soon, didn't I? Well, um, no, you didn't, um, but because you needed to hear, hear it from me. Yes, but. That's what volume one is. It's a very detailed history of the court's involvement um, of the Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Marine Fisheries Service's uh, changes in the law through regulations. It's um, attempted um, um, attempted uh, amendments in Congress that didn't get through, um, thank God, and some of the some of the characters, key characters that were involved, the, off and on throughout that fifty year period, but it also starts with a, a very detailed description of the men and the mentality that created that act back in 1973. It was debated during the 72 session of Congress and throughout 73, and it finally got signed then in December of 73 by Nixon, but. Um, uh, it's a very, very detailed and elaborate analysis of what what those people thought about, what they talked about, what was said on the floor of the House and Senate and in the committees. Um, I started practicing law 10 years before the Endangered Species Act of 73 was passed. I was around when the 66 law and the 69 law were passed. And I knew the people that were involved in enacting those laws. Uh, I used to go goose hunting regularly with John Dingle, who was the lead in the House of Representatives in pushing for all three of those bills. And um, and I knew them personally. Um, uh, they and their other legislators that passed the law, but more importantly, 
the men in the um, uh, 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 the White House uh, Council of Environmental Quality that that were tasked by the Nixon administration uh, together with the Department of Interior to draft that law. And I knew all the men that drafted the law. Three of them are still alive today. Wow. Uh, and, and so I knew this from the day one, uh, what was going on, what they were thinking about, and so forth. And then, so for the for the history books and the the mm, young people coming up through the ranks that are biologists and uh, wildlife administrators, so they can understand how did this come to be and why are we where we are today as of this, this day. Um, and they can read the history and understand better what the act was all about, what, what it was intended for originally, and how it got twisted by commerce and industry and societal pressures, um, as well as um, how the courts then interpreted and pushed it in different directions. Dr. Bear, who decides a species is endangered? It's 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 it, it, the decision is up to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for for all species except marine mammals like whales, and that is up to the National Marine Fisheries uh, Division of the Department of Commerce. But it's primarily U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And, and there are three classes. Do they? Yeah, I was going to say the 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 criteria they use. Is it available to the public? Is it? Um, oh yes. It's a it's a five point program that they have to follow in order to list or delist a species, and um, um, it, you know it's very detailed in in the legislation as to what they've got to determine whether the species is in crisis, whether it's threatened, or whether it's endangered. You know which which mm, characterization best fits its its current position when they're taking a look at it. It's up to them to do, you know, to list or delist the species. And those are, their listings frequently are fraught with argument and pushback by different groups. Mm-hmm. However, a private citizen or a private organization can, can petition the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the other one to list a particular species. And to do so, they have to then provide data, scientific data as to why their petition is valid and should be looked at. And then the, and then the Fish and Wildlife Service has to make a determination. And they've got a, a very limited time frame within which to do that. But it's very structured. And you, what is going to be the subject of Volume 2 of the Codex when it is released? Well, um, uh, uh, Joan, right? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I know that's Sorry. a problem uh, when you're talking to a lot of different people. Yes, I am Joan. <laughs> um, uh, uh, um, when the act was passed in 73, we didn't, we couldn't forecast, forecast the climate change that we're dealing with today or, in, or invasive species or other new developments that have occurred in the natural world. And, um, um, like foreign trade and, and illegal species, et cetera, et cetera. I could just go on and on uh, about the things that were never anticipated. So in preparing this manuscript, 
I had a cadre of colleagues of mine in Washington, D.C., who I called together, about 12 or 13 of us sat around a, uh, a lunch table for most of the afternoon talking about, is this book complete? And what came out of that session was, we really need to talk about the future and try to anticipate how we should deal with future challenges. What tools do we have? What should, how should we be uh, 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 looking for um, new issues to be, to be dealt with, and how should we deal with them? What is, what is our, our legal and mechanical structure to deal with them? Legislative structure, I should say. And so uh, that, that was just too much to pack into Volume 1. And so that's what Volume 2 is, is all about, is the next 50 years. What's coming what we can anticipate as best we can with, with a lens, you know, a telescope 50 years in advance. But moreover, how should we prepare to deal with the unknowns? What is our structural and mechanical ability by legislation and regulation to, to deal at, with and address these new challenges, issues, like, opportunities, challenges? I'd like you to talk a little bit more about something that you just very briefly touched on, which I guess is sort of the opposite side of this coin, and that's invasive species. I mean, we know there are certain oh, yeah. things that we want to protect, but I've also read uh, that, um, like lanternfly, which is an invasive species from Asia, and I've yeah. I've been reading articles about, oh, my God, if you ever see one, just smash it. Just, you know, right. st- just stomp it, just kill it. And I get that we don't want, especially a species that has no natural predator and has um, has the possibility of taking over and eliminating other species. I get that. But something seems inherently off about s- telling people, yeah, just this this one right here, just kill it wherever you find it. Right. Yeah. Well, we have to protect our natural world that we live in here. And when you're now you're in Chicago, so you're at mm-hmm. the base of Lake Michigan, and we had a big zebra, zebra mussel thing a while back. Well, well, that's what I was going to mention: the zebra yeah. mussel mussel problem that you and your listeners would relate to in all the all the lakes. Um, uh, um, foreign carp, P A R P, a foreign fish that that's gotten in and ruined uh, um, some of our our species is to protect. The, the integrity of our natural world and the environment of our natural world, our species. And that's what the foreign, uh, I'm sorry, the invasive species problem is all about. And so, yeah, do try to deal with them uh, with all sorts of ways of eliminating them. You, you yourself and your listeners, I'm sure, have heard a lot about how to deal with the zebra mussel. And it goes on with many species that are invasive, and they're and they and they're growing as ships and airplanes with a lot of cargo and cargo ships bring foreign goods into this country. These species find their way to attach themselves to those transport systems, and and they pop up around the country. Uh, we've got right now an ant. Uh, a fire ant coming out of Mexico that is just tearing up the coast. It's gone already gone through the panhandle of Florida, and I think it might be in Alabama or Mississippi now. 
but that's just another example of the species that's invasive, which is which is causing a lot of problems for um, other species. I mean, these fire ants uh, will, will get into a bird's nest and just destroy it. For example, <laughs> the young chicks and so forth. Just as one example, and there are many others, but they they are invasive by invading the habitat and uh, 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 of other species and, you know, kill other species. Has the Endangered so Species by, Act, in your opinion, been um, completely effective? Has it done what it set out to do? To the extent it's been funded properly. The answer is yes, to the extent it's been funded properly. But we are, Congress 50 years ago never anticipated the amount of funding it was going to take to keep this act um, really functioning well. And uh, there's been a bill now through, this is the third, yeah, six years. This is the third Congress, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act has been in Congress they probably will not make it this, this time around again. But what it does is put $1.4 billion each year distributed amongst the states to deal with endangered species and species at risk. Um, so to the extent that the states have had and federal government has had funding to deal with the problems, yes, it's been effective, but uh, we, we, we are not funding it and it has not been funded entirely and Congress seems to have turned a blind eye to this. Uh, they made a commitment 50 years ago and when you read every word of the Congress's debates in the halls of, on the floor of the, of the House and Senate and in the committee rooms the words moral imperative um, ethical responsibility those words were just to keep ringing throughout the two years of discussion. And um, um, and as I said, it passed in the Senate 100% uh, unanimous and only four dissenters in the House. And um, um, uh, that was uh, the government and, and the people really embracing the concept of protecting th- this section of the environment. However... Congress didn't give enough funding then. They didn't estimate enough in their funding, nor have they since. And so the program is terribly underfunded. Uh, there are not enough people because the Fish and Wildlife Service just the money to pay them. But that's the biggest problem. Dr. Barrett, we so, got a question texted in from one of our listeners. It's not something yeah. I know about, but you probably do. She said, it seems like... We're still losing wetlands. I know developers can buy wetlands to replace those they fill in. Can they later sell those wetlands to another developer or someone else to use again? Or are they set aside in perpetuity? Well, that's a good question. And I do know about that. Um, It's called mitigation. Uh, If they're going to destroy a piece of wetland, they have to then pay money to establish the same amount of wetland somewhere else. And um, if I understand the question correctly, can they then 
sell the area that they have utilized that was formerly wetlands. And yes, they have, they can sell that. They could. Um, but they have already paid mitigation to form the same amount of wetlands somewhere else. I, see. I mean, you create, you create wetlands readily. It's easy to create wetlands. And that's what we do. We force mitigation by that. I see. Uh, Dr. Bear, it has been such a pleasure uh, talking with you. I didn't even get to I didn't even get to half of my questions. So maybe we can pick this discussion up again in a in a few weeks when you have time to come back. uh, If you would, if you would do that, Um, I would love to do that in in April 22nd of next year is when the third book comes out. And that's the layman's version. Oh, excellent. And I'll tell you more about it. We can talk later. All righty. That's that is a plan. Uh, This is Dr. Lowell Bear, Endangered Species Act expert and author of the Codex of the Endangered Species Act. We are going to take a break for news. We're going to come back with one of our regular media segments right after this. Joan Esposito, live. Celebrating our power to bring about change. Local. Everybody has to work together. And progressive. I think you get the idea. On WCPT 820. It is that time of month when I invite former Channel 9 News Director Jennifer Schulze and current contributor to the Courier Newsroom um, Substack page, uh, newsletter. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm doing such a great job of this. This is why sometimes it's better to script things. Mark Jacob is a former editor at the Sun-Times and the Tribune, and he has a new newsletter, and we talked about it last time we were on. But, Mark, because I have made such an incredible mess of this, would you please tell people where they can find it again? Sure. It's called it's called Stop the Presses, and it's uh, you can go to Stop the Presses, one word, dot news n-e-w-s and you'll find it and you can read it and you can subscribe for free and what are the kinds of things that you write about well it's about it's really i mean it's described as um an examination of how right-wing extremism is exploiting the weaknesses in american journalism so it's it's the intersection of politics and media um speaking of of that sort of thing um i want to talk to the both of you about uh, the word vermin. Trump recently, somebody did a social media post, and sadly, I don't know if either of you saw it and saved it, but uh, I didn't, where they uh, took phrases that Trump has been using recently, and they compared them with phrases that had come from Adolf Hitler, and they were shockingly similar, particularly the use of the word vermin. And I thought it was interesting when I saw the Washington Post and they reported on it, they talked about the fact, I think it was even in the headline uh, of that Trump was using this term. But the New York Times, uh, if I recall correctly, had a more sanitized version of the story. Did, <laughs> You're being generous. That's a nice way of putting <laughs> Go it. Ahead. Go ahead, Jennifer. <laughs> Sanitized, I would say it was inaccurate, misleading, and cowardly, the original headline that they used. Um, it was 
<laughs> yeah, it was well, that terrible. Was my other, yeah, it that was the other thing I was going to say, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, here's what it was. Trump takes Veterans Day speech in a very different direction. Oh, that was the headline. After the contender for the presidency of the United States um, uses Hitler style language, uh, that's what the New York Times wrote. Within about 12 hours, they changed it, but they still didn't put vermin in the headline. In fact, I was distressed, like many of us. Jennifer? Andy, I lost her. Can you? Yeah. Well, let me can I just pick up then while we're waiting for okay, you to get then. back. The, the uh, it, it, you know this this headline says Trump takes Veterans Day speech in a very different direction. I, I kind of I, I wrote something on Twitter about this that where I, I said that there, in history you could have a lot of headlines like that, like John Wilkes Booth uh, takes visit to the theater in a very different direction. <laughs> oh. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, that there are ways to. I mean, because it's just such a vague headline that just sands off the point of what uh, of what happened. And it's and shocking. And they changed it to, in Veterans Day speech, Trump promises to root out the left. But that that hardly gets the impact. Jeez, of the Louise, word that's still pretty tepid. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, that's and and it took, it took like twelve hours of people slamming them, you know, on social media for them to do that. And then you know, and then the Washington Post, which frankly was slow to get on the story in the first place, came up with a much better headline, you know, in which they. They said that it was reminiscent of the rhetoric of dictators like Hitler and Mussolini. Their headline was, Trump calls political enemies vermin, echoing dictators Hitler and Mussolini, which is that that's, that nails it. That's what, that's what you want to say, because that's what happened. And that's and, and, the and truth. Have, yes. And, it's, and, it, and it puts it in historical context. I mean, this is not like, this is not a cheap shot. This is, Trump is using this language like, for example, he you know he also used the phrase "poisoning the blood" of you know of, of mm-hmm. our, you know our citizenry you know so so you know so so suddenly you know immigrants or leftists or whatever group he wants to you know attack next is you know poisoning the blood of Americans and this vermin is uh, you know or invaders all these terms that are that are really just the kind of terms that fascists love to use to demonize a small portion of the population and rev up the haters. Jennifer, you we started this discussion with you, and as Mark just pointed out, after uh, being taken to task on social media, the New York Times changed it, its headline, still um, not anything that anybody would call blunt. Uh, it was still very, very careful. And this is not the first time the New York Times has been taken to task and they have changed something. Why are they not learning this lesson? Why does social media have to keep after them time and time again and say to them, are you serious? Is this is, you know, it it clearly seems to me that it's happening so much that this must be some sort of mandate from on high. What are your thoughts? My guess is that uh, there's a newsroom culture of extreme caution. And I don't know that it's a written policy or people talk about it in editorial meetings. But my guess would be that there's just a general feeling um, that extends, you know, 
for people working on the weekend when certainly there are less managers around to run things by. Um, and just throughout the entire New York Times culture, because you're right, it happens with some frequency. I think their, their go-to position, uh, especially on news of the day type stories, not necessarily, it seems like they're a little more aggressive on a, a long-form piece that they've been working on a while, but like a daily a story that's happened that day. Uh, uh, they seem to be overly cautious to the point of being inaccurate and, and in this case, misleading. And I do not understand it at all because it is not good journalism to not be accurate. Um, and I don't know if Mark had a chance to mention the, the headline this week also about abortion, but that was just completely inaccurate. It wasn't what, just what cowardly was or can cautious. You, can can, can you either of you share it with us? Yeah, the, the, the New York Times wrote a story um, this week. Well, let's see, it's only Wednesday, so it was, uh, you know, it was yesterday or the day before. And, um, and they, they, they said something to the effect of, here, let me find it. Um, I will say that the Biden uh, campaign has grabbed onto it. And here it is. Why Trump seems less vulnerable on abortion than other Republicans. He appointed judges who overturned Roe, but his vague statements on the issue may gave him some leeway with voters. Now, let's just remember that Trump called for jailing doctors and women who had abortions when he was running for mm-hmm. office. And he right. is currently running radio ads in Florida taking credit for doing away with Roe versus Wade. How does that jive with this headline, vulnerable on, on abortion and his vague statements? I'm sorry, vague? What does vague mean to the people at the New York Times? I do not know. There is nothing vague about what Donald Trump is saying today and frankly has been saying for years now about reproductive rights. And, so and that, the idea that, that was, it, yeah, go ahead, Mark. No, the idea that that Trump is going to fool anyone is also stupid. I mean, it's a, he's fooled the, some reporter at the New York Times, but he's not going to fool the rest of the people. Mm-hmm. Nobody thinks that Trump is is you know is is a reasonable person as far as abortion rights. If you're in favor of abortion rights, and you know about two thirds of the population is. You're, you know that Trump is your enemy on that issue. I mean, and the, you know, look at Ohio, a red state, and look what the vote there was. So, it, it just to me, it's just it's the New York Times being so out of tune with what's going on. Well, you know, when they when they say, well, you know, Trump's going to, you know, he's not going to be hurt on the abortion issue. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, they've got to be scared, you know, scared to death about it because that's an issue that has a great power and is probably the Democrats' best issue next year. Now, in the past. We've speculated, at least when we first were commenting on this kind of thing, that maybe the New York Times was being very um, cowardly and very restrained because they didn't want to lose access. But they're the freaking New York Times. Who's not going to talk to the New York Times? I'm wondering if it's something more insidious. I mean, you guys both know, having worked in media, 
that it isn't just a public service, it's a business. What if the New York Times has actually done surveys of the people who actually pony up money for the print and digital editions and found that those people are um, for the the majority of those people are far right is and they're playing to the crowd. I mean, I can remember back when I was doing the four o'clock news, which was considered, you know, like before anybody comes home from work. So it was sort of um, for the people who were home with their families, the mom and the kids and You know, I'd worked for bosses who would try to, okay, well, the audience is moms home with their kids. They would like stories about um, how to do homework better or something like that. Is this a business decision, guys? Jennifer, what do you think? I think it's both. I think it's a business decision, and um, I think it's also how the editor, the new editor, newish editor of the New York Times and the editor before him um, feel about things. They basically have said we're, well, they have said they're going to try to go down the middle, more or less, and not take sides. Um, no one has ever asked, I'm not asking them to take sides, and I'm not quite sure that I think, Joan, that your hypothesis could be correct in that they're catering to um, a large right-wing audience because I would find that hard to imagine that that is their core audience, um, ponying up 28 bucks a month or whatever it is for online access to the New York Times. And uh, because the New York Times has been so demonized by the right, I think that, that that's not their audience. And I, so I don't think that's why they're doing it. I think that they are doing it because they're cowards. Yeah, I think so, too. I think, you know, look at the New York Times stories. This is what's interesting is because the New York Times in the last week or two has written very hard-hitting stories about how Trump and his allies are planning, you know, detention camps for millions of immigrants and and going to send them out of the country and and, and just all this just – Scary stuff, how they're going to subvert the Justice Department and, you know, have an, you know, an army of Trump, you know, loyalists. And, and so they're writing really hard stories, and then they're putting super soft headlines on them. And, it, and I, I think that's a culture problem. I think, that, I think it's both cowardly and it's a culture problem where nobody wants to stick their neck out. And they know that headlines matter more than stories because people read headlines and much more than stories. And which to me means you ought to put your best people on the headlines. But they're not doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and tell me in a situation like that. <laughs> yeah, tell me in a situation like that. Do you think behind the scenes that the reporters who are writing those stories are screaming loud and long about those headlines? Do you think those discussions are taking place, or is it? And man, I've got this cush job. I work at you know supposedly the best paper in the country. I'm sure not going to rock the boat. Because I can imagine. I think. I think it's all of it. I think it depends. It depends who you are in the food chain and, you know, how vulnerable you think your position is. And, you know, you might work at the biggest newspaper in the country, but you look around every day and see how other media outlets are doing, you know, shedding jobs. And so I don't think any journalist in America feels secure. Um, So that could certainly be part of it. Um, who knows? But but I think it starts at the top, and 
either you decide you're going to be brave. I can't imagine. I can't believe I'm saying this. It, be brave to tell the truth. And well, that's, I can't imagine that you're saying that either, because, I mean, let's look back. I mean, it was a newspaper in Boston that started was one of the first, if not the first, to shine the light on the sex scandal in the Catholic Church. I mean, right. I, you know, decades and decades ago, when Dick Kay worked at Channel 5, Dick Kay did a story on cops that worked overnight and would park their car somewhere and sleep part of the night away. I mean, taking taking bold positions to bring things to light that need to be brought to light, even if there is there is fallout that you have to live with. Uh, that's what that's what news media is supposed to be all about. Well, when right. did the did, New York Times lose this? Did it never have it? And I just didn't notice. Did we did any of us get in the news business in order to not make anyone mad? I mean, that's a, I used to tell my reporters, I used to say, I used to say, you know, if you're not making anyone mad, you're not having an impact, you know, and, right. and, and so you're going to, you know, you're going to, you got to just build that in, you know, you have to understand that. But, but the New York Times seems to want to make no one mad with its headlines. Oh, and it's I don't know if I agree problem. with you, Mark. I think that they, I think that they relish making some people on the left very mad with their headlines and their opinion section. <laughs> oh, yeah. I yeah. think well, that they're, I think they love that. But in the news yeah, department, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a question of, of um, we're going to leave all of the stuff to the opinion pages. And speaking of which, this is a whole nother discussion about the opinion pages. I think it's great to have, different opinions on things. But I still think that those opinion writers should be people who are respectable. Hugh Hewitt, I'm looking at you, um, a (laughs) loathsome human being who, you know, I don't care. I don't care if you're trying to have fair and balanced. You can find someone else to give a conservative viewpoint who isn't a reprehensible human being. I don't know. At least I think you can. Do you guys agree? Well, I would say that now we're talking about the Washington Post because Hugh Hewitt writes opinion pieces for the Washington Post. And uh, the Post has a couple of people like Hugh Hewitt. He's not the only one. They have, you know, Mark Thiessen, who is uh, is might might be more of a flamethrower than Hugh Hewitt. Um, and, oh, and Kathleen Parker. Remember the one who says who said after Trump got elected, said, well, there's really going to be no difference between, you know, Trump and, and, and uh, Hillary Clinton, you know. And really, stop like whining. It will be fine. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It will when. be fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she's less of a flamethrower. I think she's just, you know, a little obtuse. But, um, yeah, the, the opinion sections, um, I, I don't know. I think sometimes that goes back to, you know, who's going to the cocktail party and, you know, these are my friends and I'm going to give them a column and, and you know, we got to do both sides and, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> no do good. you see any indication that the New York Times is going to change its ways anytime soon. And in the interest of full disclosure, I used to be a digital subscriber and I quit. Oh, my God, I think over a year ago, because 
um, I wanted to beat my head against the wall every time I looked at the New York Times and I decided that it was not good for my mental health. Well, I think it's still a great newspaper. A friend of mine said, said, how can a newspaper that's so good be so bad? Is, is kind of a friend. <laughs> And, and uh, give, you, give you one example here real quickly. They, they had a story a while back that was a terrific story about how Republicans in Congress were blocking a longtime program that had started under George W. Bush to fight AIDS overseas. They didn't like it, you know, and they, they were, the Republicans were blocking renewal of this important program that had saved millions of lives overseas. So the, the, and it, it was the Republicans totally doing it. New York Times writes a real hard-hitting story. The headline for that story was, Partisan politics puts a huge win for public health at risk. So it was. It wasn't the Republicans' fault. It was politics' fault. Mm. It was. And so, so, so they totally sanded off the point. They totally vagued it up to where nobody would, you know, would know who the villain was. It, it's just. It's just cowardly headline writing. Is what that is. Guys, we have a caller who wants to join our conversation. Jim is on the line. Hey, Jim, you're on with me and Jennifer and Mark. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, 50 years ago, I didn't recall Nixon's voters being coddled like Trump's voters are being coddled. They're coddled in the media like they are a special group of sacrosanct people that have a deliberate message. In, in 50 years ago, Trump's, I mean, Nixon's voters were, weren't. Uh, Referred to as Nixon's voters, he was just a, he was uh, against the free and fair election by breaking into the headquarters. Uh, Trump, on the same regard, is even worse. But his voters are coddled as if they uh, have some special message to give or some uh, direction that they want to take the country in. And I think to uh, how that could happen in fifty years is a mystery to me. But uh, it's being done. Now, you turn on any, any uh, channel, and uh, they treat his voters as if they had some kind of special uh, enlightenment about them. It's just very strange how 50 years can pass by, and you end up with this dilemma we're in. Anyway, guys, thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Um, well, I don't know. We're all pretty young. We probably don't remember the coverage of Nixon all that well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe I do a little bit. Um, do you think there are corollaries? Do you think there were cowardly media outlets of prominence always with us? And we're just noticing it more now because there's so much contrast in between the good folks and the bad folks. Mark, yeah. start with you. Well, yeah, I think um, I think that that. The Nixon got the benefit of the doubt for a long time from the media overall because I think the people couldn't conceive of the fact that there would be a criminal operation and working out of the White House to sabotage the opponents and to spy on people and just did a, an entire dirty tricks operation operating out of the White House, which is what it was. Um, so I think you can give the news media some some excuse that they couldn't imagine that it was as bad as it turned out to be. But that but nobody's got that excuse today. I mean, you know, in fact the thing about it that 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 drives me nuts is that this is not like one of those things where the New York Times or the Washington Post have got it right about, well, we think uh people are telling us that uh Trump is planning to create giant camps and 
Texas to house millions of immigrants and and to deport them all and stuff like that. They're saying it. They're telling they're telling reporters from the New York Times that they're going to do this. They think it's in their interest. They think they're going to rev up their base by doing. It. So this is all this is all out there. That's the thing. It's not it's not like Trump is hiding what he wants to do. He's telling us that he wants to prosecute his political enemies if he gets elected again. He's not saying that he wants to wants to prosecute him for committing crimes. He's saying he wants to prosecute him because they're his political enemies. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. He's saying it out loud. Yep. He's, he's saying it out loud. Um, the people who are helping him do it are saying it out loud. They're open to it. It's not like it's some big investigative thing or it's a secret. It is right out there in the open. And it's interesting how the media doesn't, Generally, I would say there has been some bright lights, but generally doesn't quite know how to process all of this. Either it's like a fire hose of all this terrible stuff and they just it's too much. How do I break it down? Where do I focus, especially if I'm like broadcast or news? And and they don't seem to be able to get their arms around it to be able to report it in a meaningful and ongoing way. Because it isn't a one-day story, it's an everything story that should that should influence all of your coverage of this presidential campaign. I mean, this is the foundation of Trump and who he is, and we should be talking about it in some form all the time um, as we're covering him. But the media seems to be almost, I don't know, overwhelmed by it, and it's not a secret. I think the news media liked it the old way, where they thought the Republicans and Democrats were equally, equally bad, equally corrupt, and they could just do a he said, she said on every story. Well, here's what the Democrats say. Here's what the Republicans mm-hmm. say. We're not this high. We're not. We're not going to worry about figuring out who's telling the truth and who's lying. We're just going to lay them both out there, and then we've done our job and we can go home. That I, I think the news media, a lot of people in the news media, like it that way. And, and and therefore they're they're pretending that we're still in those times, even though one party, the Democratic Party, is pretty much the way it's been in you know in the last three or four or five decades. I mean it's for the good and bad. And the Republican Party has taken a sharp turn toward fascism and toward authoritarianism, toward toward getting rid of the Constitution, toward you know toward very scary stuff. And the news media is still in this, well, he said, she said, uh, here's what they said, here's what they said, we're done. And it, 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 I think it, you're it's right. It's a giant failure. It's a giant failure by the news media. I think you're right. I mean, it's, I think media, and we've talked about this before, and I think we all agree, media is not ready for this moment and hasn't been. Yeah, I was going to say, this the, moment's been going on for quite a right. while. I mean, oh, we're, hang on a second, Jennifer. Years. I just realized that uh, um, uh, we've got to take a break. Hold that thought. Uh, Also, I've got a caller who had a bad connection but wants to ask a question, which I will ask when Mark Jacob and uh, Jennifer Schulze and I come right back after this. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are doing our monthly media segment with uh, former Sun-Times and Trib editor Mark Jacob, currently working with the Courier Newsroom Group, and Jennifer Schulze, former news director at uh, Channel 9 TV. 
Mark, Jennifer, and I recently uh, went to a presentation by somebody who is involved in the journalism community and shared their look at the data of who's paying attention and who's paying attention to what. And it ties in with <clears throat> Andy got a caller, guys, but the connection was terrible. So Andy sent me a text with what they wanted to say. And they wanted to make a point about the negative effects of paywalls. For example, if you see a misleading headline, but the story itself is behind a paywall, you can't ever learn the truth of the matter or the other side of it. You only get the headline and the presentation the three of us were at. There's an awful lot of people out there who won't pay for, for pretty much anything uh, on the Internet. They are used to free content. And if you're going to put your message behind a paywall, well, they'll just get their information somewhere else. It it really brings the problem of bad headlines into an even greater spotlight if for a lot of people the headline is all they ever get to see. Um, Jennifer, why don't you start and talk about the what you think about paywalls and if they make sense? Well, I mean, media has to, you know, find a way to pay its bills. But as we've talked about on the show before, uh, uh, decisions were made back at the dawn of the Internet that were not very smart. And uh, news media just gave away its content for free, uh, creating an expectation that news media content should be free. And, um, and people feel that way. So subscriptions, I think, as we heard at that um, presentation, the Chicago Tribune used to have, you know, a million subscribers for its Sunday paper. It's down to 100,000 now. Um, you know, people just don't want to do that anymore and are not doing it. And um, then the argument about the paywall, re-democracy, Trump and all of that, um, you know, this person we saw speak said democracy dies behind a paywall. It's a <laughs> conundrum for media that, again, needs to pay its bills. But I do think when, for example, the New York Times ran this huge story this weekend about Trump's plans for concentration camp like concentration like camps and mass roundups of immigrants and deportations and all of that. That should have been a free link. Anybody wanted to read it and they should have blasted it out there for the whole world to read because it, it matters to democracy. They didn't do that. They don't do that. Uh, you'll you'll see if you're on social media, and not that many people actually are, but if you are, sometimes you'll see a reporter or someone else uh, say, here's a gift link, and you can read a story you might not otherwise have. But paywalls do get in the way. But then here's the thing. If you don't aren't charging subscribers, how are you paying? Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Is there any ad business anymore? Is that is not that really? No, no. So it's 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 subscribers are the the main thing, and then for the nonprofit news organizations, it's um, philanthropy, 
And neither of those are working very well right now. So we need to come up with something else because we need media and we need it to be available. But here's, here's a paywall strategy that would actually work and actually help democracy as well. And you saw it in the early weeks of the pandemic, because every news organization dropped its paywall for pandemic stories because they, they knew it was of vital interest to people to know what the closings were, what the count was as far as who was sick and, and all kinds of stuff. So news organizations made, uh, they dropped their paywall for COVID-19 stories. And you know what they found out? They found out that their subscriptions increased. They found out that, that, that people valued their information so much that they considered a public service and they wanted long-term to be subscribers of that organization. I wrote a story about that when I was at Northwestern University about how, um, how COVID-19 actually caused a boost in circulation, even though they made the stories free. So, uh, you know, so it can be done. And the problem is deciding what stories to make free. And, I think, and, uh, you know, and the person who runs Courier Newsroom, Tara McGowan, has written about this, too, that on political stories, during the height of a campaign, news organizations need to drop the paywall for those stories because it's a great public service. Otherwise, you're talking to like 1% or 2% of the population. If you really want an informed electorate, you need to drop the paywall for those stories. And my feeling is that there's plenty of else, else that's, you know, that these news organizations offer, you know, about, you know, cooking, all kinds of stuff, entertainment, uh, just there are tons of stories that they could put behind the paywall, but put the political stories out there where people can get them. Because we're in a crisis point for democracy, and stories about whether democracy is going to survive really belong outside a paywall. Yeah. Well, I do know that the New York Times has an option for people like me who just can't take their um, news reporting anymore. But you can for, I don't know, what, $4 a month or something, you can digitally get access to the recipes and to the crossword puzzles and, and other other games. But, you know, it seems to me that a lot of mainstream media have kind of eliminated that, at least the, the print media. I mean, you know, I mean, how many newspapers, you know, still review books or have a, a book section? Um, I remember the Tribune used to uh, have a huge book section. I mean, that's something that I would have paid money for. And, you know, you can you can get the um, the New York Times book review section. You can pay for that separately. But I think in the interest of economic economizing a lot of papers dropped the sort of things that now people would probably pay money for. Well, maybe, I mean, I don't know. I think their biggest drivers actually are the, the food, the games, (laughs) right? I, I think that's what, what's, what's driving most of the subscriptions for the, the New York times. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's a it's a tough it's a tough thing. But right now, we don't have to reinvent the whole wheel. How about between now and the 2024 election, make your political coverage free? I bet you will get like Mark said, this has already happened. You'll get more subscribers anyway. It'll probably balance out. But just Washington Post, New York Times, whoever you are, the Atlantic, make your political coverage free. Well, this has actually become a sales point for 
or local news media is, is you know, local newspapers. Whether I mean, when I say newspapers, I'm not talking about paper. I'm talking about online as well. But, the, but one of the big sales points for them now is that it's good for the community. It's become this thing that that you want to make the, the subscribers feel good about contributing to community information and creating a sense of community, which is what local news organizations do. And you can do that. That's you know you can do that and still make the most important news uh, free. And, and here's an example. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. Maybe the listeners will better understand what I'm talking about. The Atlanta Constitution Journal, at the end, uh, uh, when when the uh, Herschel Walker was running, you know, just this disaster of a candidate. You know, they were and every almost every day people were finding. You know, someone he they driven somebody for an abortion, even though he was said he was you know against abortion, or that he had you know his businesses were all fake, and you know I mean just a disaster of a candidate. The Atlanta newspaper, the biggest paper in Georgia, kept those stories behind the paywall. I mean during the election, and 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 what kind of public service is that? That's like the opposite of public service. And and so if they would have like dropped the paywall and, and advertised that way, said we're making all these stories free because they're really important to uh, to the state of Georgia and to our our readers, and but subscribe to so we can keep on producing this high quality content. That's a great sales point. That's something mm-hmm. you can really advertise and, and sell subscriptions on. It's been proven by the the COVID nineteen example. Yeah, it seems like an easy fix, doesn't it? It certainly does. But then we often come to very logical conclusions on how some of these uh, problems can be fixed. And, you know, not that I don't think the three of us are particularly, I think that we're experienced. I think that we're smart. You would think that there would be experienced, smart people at some of these organizations who should be having these same conversations and potentially reaching the same conclusions. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, guys, we need to take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk about um, the apparent shift that Univision, the Spanish, Spanish language news giant, apparently it is going from an anti-Trump to what appears to a lot of people to be a very pro-Trump sort of stance. I want to talk about that when we come right back after a break. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined, excuse me, I'm joined by former Trib and sometimes editor Mark Jacob and former Channel 9 News Director Jennifer Schulze. We are talking about media, and I read something this morning about Univision. They had a they have a reporter. Uh, I don't know exactly how he pronounces his first name. I assume it's Jorge Ramos. And in uh, Jorge Ramos got under Donald Trump's skin in a very big way, and so Donald Trump started. Um, attacking Univision, attacking Mr. Ramos every chance he got because Jorge Ramos uh, has a pretty decent relationship with the truth. Now Univision has new management, and it seems that the person in charge now wants to be very close to Donald Trump to the point where they um, cozied up 
to the son-in-law-in-chief, Jared Kushner, and, you know, wanted to make sure that, you know, Mexico gives Jared Kushner an award, and we love Jared Kushner, and he's our uh, gateway to back into Donald Trump's good graces. It is uh, considering the fact that some Democratic consultants are very worried about the Hispanic male vote and the black male vote going into 2024. This would seem to be something that should make a lot of people really nervous. Um, Mark, you want to start with this? Yeah. <clears throat> and now one thing is that's worth noting is that uh, the ownership of, of Univision isn't American. It's, you know, either mostly or wholly Mexican. So you have this this company that's that is controlling or influencing a lot of uh, American voters' opinions, you know, being uh, run or owned by people outside the country. So you know that's a that's a that's an issue. I mean, you know, I'm not saying it's it should be banned or anything, but I think it's worth noting. Mm-hmm. And and I do think I think we have to worry about. Um, you know about the fact that uh, you know that, that that's part of why why Trump I think is allowing uh, his allies to talk to the media about all these horrible things they're going to be doing is because they because they think it's kind of creates this macho thing you know we're going to get tough you know one of Trump's favorite words is tough and so I think he's trying to appeal to kind of macho elements and and clearly you have seen that while uh, Latino and Black uh, voters. Don't go for Trump. Um, men are more likely to vote for Trump than women. Those uh, demographic groups. So there is, yeah, and you know, and especially in places like Florida, there is there are right wing Latinos who uh, Trump uh, attracts too. So, so yeah, this is just to be worried about. Uh, be, you know, whether Democrats are able to uh, you know strongly keep a Latino vote, uh, in which they they've won you know in all recent elections. So this is. This is scary, and I mean, I think it's when I say it's scary. I'm not just saying rah rah Democrats. I'm saying rah rah democracy. Yeah. And because you know, because again, I'm not trying to be partisan. I'm trying to be patriotic. It's not really about whether you know whether the blue team wins or the red team wins. It's whether a team that actually believes in the Constitution wins. And so, so that's why I'm worried about it. And so, and, and it just see to me, it feels like. You know the, these Trump people are not stupid. They know, they know that that people are influenced by money, and and I, I I just hope there's more reporting being done on whether what what the money is behind this because it sure smells like that like this is some sort of thing where they're catering to Univision in some uh, some way to really benefit Univision rather than Univision isn't isn't doing this to become more fair and objective. They're doing it for some other reason, and I'd like to know what it is. Yeah. Well, three of the owners met with Trump at Mar-a-Lago last weekend, right? And then he did this interview. And the other thing I think that's really disturbing, and this makes me start to feel like it's a Fox News problem, and I shouldn't have said news. Fox Fox Cable. Fox Cable. (laughs) Um, Because um, they did a softball interview with Trump that they broadcast on Univision, and it was not Jorge Ramos. It was very, it was someone else, and it was very um, gentle. And right. in addition to that, they 
canceled uh, ads that the Biden campaign had already purchased and planned to run within that interview. Um, and then they, the Biden campaign had their one of their campaigner staff, their Latino outreach director, was scheduled to come on Univision after the Trump interview, and they canceled that, too. So all of that is very concerning. And then I see today um, a leading anchor, news anchor, their, their primetime news anchor um, resigned today. Um, he has not oh, really? spoken out yet. But we, we, and I don't know how to pronounce his name, Leon, Leon Kraus. He is the most, one of the most prominent anchors at Univision, um, according to Variety. And it says he left the network in the wake of the controversial interview with former President Trump. Um, And so that'll be interesting to see how that develops. The article on Variety also says that uh, other journalists at the cable channel are very concerned about this turn now that this Mexican company has taken over uh, Univision. Um, But the fact that they're canceling advertising and changing, they say they changed their policy about political Mm -hmm. advertising, but after they'd already done the deal, you know, and then canceled the Biden person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. the Washington Post uh, wrote about this and um, they they said this. A Biden campaign official said that while Univision had requested an interview with the president, there had been no offer comparable to Trump's, which involved an hour long sit down that was broadcast during the network's highest rated hour, 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, that and is very let's remember, let's remember that this is the former president who is planning to put millions of Latino immigrants in camps. This is like this is no Latino oriented news station would would be sucking up to Donald Trump right now mm-hmm. unless there's some some motive that we're is not clear to us right now. I mean, because their constituents, if they care about their the people who are watching their TV news and their well-being, they would not be sucking up to Donald Trump. Well, that's the whole. I remember during Donald Trump's the early years of his presidency when he was just so anti anything to do with brown people. And uh, one of Ray's friends who was from South America and was living in this country was an ardent, rabid, radical Trump supporter. And I said to Ray, I said, doesn't he understand that Trump hates people like him? And, and I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand. And it was when you, when you, when, when you talk to somebody like that, at least what limited experience I have, it's like, oh yeah, well, that's everybody but me. That's, you know, he might hate brown people, but not me. Uh, um, I'm a Trump supporter. Therefore, I'm protected. I'm different. You know, he may hate the bulk of these people, but not me. There's this strange, weird thing that goes on in their head that somehow they're exempt from this uh, from this wave of hate that is being um, sent to all others who are just like them. Right. Yeah, that's right. when you get the LGBTQ uh, Republicans, they get the same kind of thing. Is you know, is why are you a uh, Republican? I mean, mm-hmm. do you know that what, what Republicans have in store for you if they get total power? 
you know, it's it, it, it's it's stunning how people can just assume that well, bad things might be happening, but they're not going to happen to me. It's just it's it's a fantasy that that people operate in, and it and and people like Trump and you know whole MAGA crowd knows how to take advantage of that. Plus, plus you also get like for example, I, I, it it always stuns me when there's a prominent you know black Republican politician because I mean clearly a lot of Republicans, uh, you know, they they're not in favor of equal rights and they're not in favor of you know they you know they're much more concerned about Confederate statues and black Americans. And, and so why do people like Tim Scott and Byron Donalds, why are they Republicans? And the, and the answer to me is for their own personal benefit, because, because they personally benefit and the Republicans are happy to use them in that way. It's not, I mean, it's not because they think that, that Republican policies are going to be great for African-Americans in general. It's because they think it'll be great for them. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Jen. Oh, I just want to beat my head against the wall. (laughs) I just, the last thing we need is another um, cable network, you know, going over to the dark side, basically, doing the Fox thing where it's not, I mean, it's changing, it's changing who it is. These last few days on Univision, they've changed their character as a had been a very respected news organization done really interesting work with terrific journalists and to make this switch in this way, I think, I think we should look for more of the same and maybe worse uh, ahead. And that's not a good thing for the country. Not a good thing at all. Nope, well, nope. I think it's going to be a it's going to be a lively 2024, and um, I think that the work we do, holding media responsible, holding people's feet to the fire, is going to become more and more important and more and more critical. Uh, Jennifer writes essays that you can find on Heartland Signal. Uh, Mark Jacob has a Substack newsletter that he was telling us about and would like to plug again. Go ahead, Mark, real quickly. It's uh, it's at stopthepresses, all one word, dot news. So it's pretty easy to remember, stopthepresses, dot news. You can get it for free and you can subscribe for free and and, and read it. Usually I write weekly. So uh, let's... uh, Let's gear up. You can you uh, all of my listeners, you can take the holidays off. And then as soon as the holidays are over, we're going to gear up for 2024 and we're going to hit the ground running. So uh, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Mark. It is always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a break for news. And when we come back. You may have seen on 60 Minutes recently, our very own Terry Savage was there talking about Social Security horror stories. She's going to join us to tell us about that in her new book right after this. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Our good friend, Terry Savage, joins us from time to time and always brings us Really sensible advice, and she gives people really helpful answers to their financial predicaments. 
Well, you know, she has this part of her website where you can ask her a question. And she started hearing about all of these people who were in terrible trouble because of mistakes that the Social Security Administration had made and was asking them to pay for people who whose lives were falling apart because of this. She and Lawrence Kotlikoff wrote a book about it. She and Lawrence were recently on 60 Minutes to talk about it. And she is here now to tell us this harrowing story and what's going on. Terry, welcome back to our show. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Joan. It's something that really uh, stirs people's souls. This is not a political story. This is not about the future of Social Security. This is about an abomination that is happening, abuse of seniors and the disabled going on right now. Let me just explain. When I heard from the widow Ruth, post on my Ask Terry blog at terrysavage.com earlier this year. She wrote to me that she was 73 years old, had a triple bypass, and her husband had died a couple of years ago, and all of a sudden she got a letter from Social Security demanding $88,000 in repayment within 30 days or they would stop her benefits. I figured, Repayment. Okay, so this was money that they had already sent they had her paid and were her. asking back. They said they had overpaid her. And so they wanted it back within 30 days, and here's how you pay it back, etc. All I can tell you is she was just in tears when I talked to her, and I said, oh, I'll be able to fix this. I'm Terry Savage, and I'll just call Social Security. They must have made a horrible mistake, misplaced a couple of decimal points, and they stiffed me, whether I called in the Middle West, the Chicago region, the Midwest, even got to Washington. I said, well, I'm writing this column anyway. And out of the woodwork from around the country where my column runs came people sending emails. That's happening to me. It was 60,000. It was my son who was disabled. It was, and the story started building up. Now, Larry Kotlikoff is a noted economist, and he wrote the book, Get What's Yours from Social Security. And it was a New York Times bestseller about six, seven years ago. I called him. I've known him, sort of, sort of. And he said, Terry, write another column, solicit the stories, and we'll write a book. And believe me, this book, Social Security Horror Stories, I sent it over to my friends, our mutual friends at Channel 2, John, and said, I think 60 Minutes would be interested. And the next thing you know, Anderson Cooper was in town interviewing us. So it's taken on a life of its own. The website is the same as the book, Social Security Horror Stories. The bottom line is, though they wouldn't tell me at first, they said, oh, we'll read our annual report, Social Security is clawing back $21.6 billion in mistakes they made overpaying people over the years, some going back 40 years. A million people a year get a clawback letter, and we're showing you how to avoid it happening to you and also trying to raise awareness because we are now... Got the the uh, Congressional Subcommittee on the House Ways and Means for Social Security got in touch with us. And we know what we want them to do, which is stop the clawbacks, restore the benefits. You see, they say, if you don't get your pay us right now, we'll just stop your benefits. That's what happened to this woman. How do and they many, make these many mistakes? How do, how do the mistakes happen? Aren't they the okay. ones that, like the IRS, that have all the information? They have all of our data? How, how is this happening? 
Boy, as usual, you've nailed it, the critical point. They don't have all the information, but they don't want us to know they don't. So um, sometimes the mistakes are almost understandable, except that they go on for so long. That is, if you're if you worked in uh, you know at a job for years and then decided to be a school teacher and earned also a public school teacher's pension, then you're supposed to have an offset, whether that's fair or not. That's another story. We're going to end that too, but that's neither here nor there. And so Social Security is supposed to be notified, and people do notify them. Well, I'm getting six hundred and twelve dollars a month pension from my job at a school teacher, but I worked for those many years at XYZ Corporation and paid in. So what's the offset? They never calculate the offset. They go on paying for years, hundreds of dollars a month that they then find out was too much. So that's one source. Many of these go back. A mother had, who subsequently died was disabled, had a six-year-old son and received benefits as disabled people do when they have young children. And now, years after the mother died, they're coming after the son, who was five, six, seven at the time. They say this money shouldn't have been paid because she earned a little bit too much money and didn't qualify 40 years ago, 30 years ago. They're coming after the son. The stories, we've asked people to post their horror stories at our website, socialsecurityhorrorstories.com. And I guarantee you, Joan, even if you took a glass of wine or vodka and sat there, you couldn't, I read them all, of course, they move me to tears, and uh, I put them up on the website, and um, they are terrible, they are abusive, they are bullying, because they have all the power, they never tell you, here's how we calculated it, they're often wrong, frequently wrong, frequently inappropriate clawbacks, but they have the power, and they stop your check, now think about this, any of you out there getting social security, or your parents are, they they typically deduct Medicare Part B, your premium, from that monthly Social Security check that gets deposited in your bank account. So when they stop the premiums, not only do you, the, the uh, benefits, not only do you suddenly have no money to live on, and many, many people are living just basically most of their life as their Social Security check, but now you have no Medicare Part B because there's nothing to deduct it from, and you got to scrounge money for that. It's, it's horrible. And there's no... Statute of limitations on this? Since you said that that this kid who was five at the time got a bill because they overpaid his mom. I mean, this is crazy. 20-something years ago. Yes. The stories are either crazy, insane, or obscene. And I didn't make these up, and this is not five or ten people. This is they have admitted a million people a year. Some of them are big notices. Some of them... Uh, not so big, but for someone who's living on Social Security, they weren't saving this money. This was how they're paying rent or food. So it's a big deal to a million people a year, a million people last year, a million people next year. And it could happen to you or someone you love. I mean, if it happens to your mother, for example, and her check is stopped and you can't get through to talk to them. They've lost all your records. They won't justify it. They have lower-level people. If you say, but I need a waiver, I'm old and poor, they turn it down without doing any research. And if you ask for an appeal, it's their own bought-and-paid-for administrative law judges that have been instructed to turn down these appeals. That could take years. No lawyer will help you because there's, you know, you're not getting money back. You're just getting this sword lifted from your neck. So people don't can't afford a lawyer, and lawyers won't take it thinking they'll get something out of it because... 
All you want is relief from this claim and your benefits return. So again, we're calling on Congress, stop the clawbacks immediately, Social Security's mistake, restore the benefits, the Social Security benefits that you have arbitrarily stopped, put an 18-month deadline on all clawbacks. If you've made this mistake, Social Security, you suffer, don't put it on our grandma. And finally, if there's a clawback is necessary, hold a hearing, come up with evidence that would hold up in court, demonstrate, and then show some mercy to people who couldn't possibly pay you back. It wasn't their fault in the first place. It was yours, Social Security. You know, um, when you did the 60 Minutes piece with Anderson Cooper, I'm uh, assuming that it was uh, people whose stories you had heard because he profiled two or three people. And I remember there was one couple and they thought they were like sitting at the table and they were like, well, um, you know, sort of like, I guess we have to like sell our house. Um, That's I what's guess happening. Have, yeah, yeah, I guess. No, know, these the were the people money we gave. We've saved for retirement. We have to we have to spend this way. And what I thought was most heartbreaking, there was one couple that toward the end of the piece, Anderson Cooper said that they'd given up. They weren't going to they were just tired of fighting. They were tired of fighting. They were tired of trying to get somebody to listen to their story. They were tired of of trying to get a waiver, and they were just going to, you know, sell their house and use up all their retirement. And then did you see what happened? Those three couples, those were all people who wrote, we gave them our files. By then I had collected a couple hundred horror stories, and, um, you know, I had them in, in my records, and they went over and picked a number of people to talk to. This was one of them. And at the end... There, and the the three couples featured, the three people featured, uh, had their their uh, clawbacks waived, but that leaves nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety seven, most of whom are posting on socialsecurityhorrorstories.com one horrible story after another. We yeah. want people to do that because we're going to show Congress. And I thought that was it really. It really made me it made me angry because it, it was like, oh, uh, all three couples, like the one couple was giving up. The other couple was going to sell their house. The other couple was going to like, um, you know, was going to take all their retirement. And then Anderson Cooper goes, oh, by the way, all three of the people uh, featured in tonight's report, uh, they're all getting their um, their bills waived by Social Security. And I kept thinking, well, does, does this mean Anderson Cooper has to do the story every Sunday every night, night for like the yeah, next few years? To get yeah, and I've got all the horror stories for them. See, that's the problem. They was, do you realize, Joan, that Social Security did not come on camera for Anderson Cooper? Yes, Anderson Cooper they refused came to, to talk about it. And, and I possible? said to him, well, I said to him, so what did they tell you, Anderson? Because it was tough for me to get through it all. They just referred me to their annual report, which since I can read annual reports, I went, wait, what? What's this number? Wait, what? They can't be? And then if I read it, it was. He said, no, they wouldn't talk to us. Oh, and you won't talk to 60 Minutes. I mean, really? And, you know, it would seem like as a government agency that's taxpayer-funded that there would be some accountability. Is there no accountability? Well, that's, it seems there has, they've gotten away with this. They've gotten away with it because the people that they've used were old and individuals because they could never, you, you, they'd make appointments with Social Security. You'll read the stories in our book and you'll read the stories on the website. They'd make appointments and never, sh- the Social Security would never call them back. 
They would make appointments and they'd say, oh, Miss Smith isn't here and I don't have your records. I mean, they don't have a central computer system. Look, Social Security has one job. It collects 12.4% out of your paycheck and a similar amount, equal amount from your boss. So you're paying in a lot of money. Or the, I mean, 12.4% total of all your pay that you would have gotten. All they have to do is keep track of it and decide when you retire how much you're entitled to. It's a pretty simple job. They have it so messed up. Their systems, their computers, but their attitude is worse than their technological problems. There are a lot of lower-level people who've been empowered to say, sorry, hang up, goodbye, and it happens to frightened older people and disabled people. So now, you know, it's coming out of the woodwork now. We're doing this. We are not stopping. We are making this a major thing. Yes, we need to fix Social Security, all of you out there who want to call in and say, <clears throat> well, I mean, that's because you don't raise taxes enough. And I'm not even talking about that with you. Yes, absolutely, you're right. I'm talking about abuse that is going on now of people who did work and did pay in and who plan their retirements based on expecting this money and Social Security screwed up, miscalculated, <clears throat> did, forgot to calculate some pension offsets, whatever it is, and they're in the book there are dozens of reasons. Social Security, in every case, they got it wrong. By the way, we don't know if they've made mistakes with underpayments. We don't know if the oh. check you're getting this month. I mean, we found the overpayments because they clawed back and they called you and said, we want the money back. How do we, If they made that many mistakes with overpayments, I'd leave you to go to commercial break with this thought. No, no. Maybe the we check you're getting. We don't have to go to break for 10 more minutes. Oh, okay. Well, I'll leave you this thought, though. How do you know that the money you're getting this month is really the right amount? You trust now, I mean, them. not maybe overpayment, but what if you're not being paid enough? Because Social Security will never tell you. Now, we have a solution. <clears throat> I mean, we have uh, something you can do to find out. Larry had created software uh, a few years back called MaximizeMySocialSecurity.com. It's an online software, secure and private. And if you're already claiming, you can find out whether you're getting the right amount. If you haven't claimed yet, it'll help you make decisions like... Do I claim my benefits first and then my spouse? Do I do this? Do I wait? What's the impact on my check if I wait? And so forth. It costs $39. Larry's never taken a penny out of the company. It just keeps it running. The technology is always up to date. MaximizeMySocialSecurity.com. And you will get the correct answer so that when you do call Social Security, if they give you something else, you know they're wrong and you know you're setting up for a big problem. But, you know, on those times when I've spoken to Social Security, um, I was getting ready to start getting a Social Security payment, and uh, the person I was talking to on the line, I didn't even think I was eligible for this. They said, well, your husband died. And I was like, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. they said, you know, you can, you, if you want to wait and collect yours, you know, down the road, and it'll be a little more, you can collect his now. And... I, you know, my husband died 30 years ago, so it wasn't like I w w was something that I was, was even thinking, thinking about. about. And, well, and guess they what? Were so helpful and and so that was a smart person. Let me tell you, we talk about Larry has been writing about Social Security for many years. You are lucky, Joan, and I'll tell you why. Oh, we talk about the scams, the many ways that Social Security agents mislead people, and in fact, the Inspector General 
has asked them to pay back $130 million of the so-called widow scam. And what they do is they, call you, they, they say to you, well, do you want to claim all your benefits? Yes. Your widow's benefit? Your, yeah, absolutely. So they check a box that means you already deemed to have claimed your own, but you, they give you the widow's benefit because it's higher. Let's just say it was higher. And meanwhile, if you would have waited three years till you're 70 to collect your own benefit, it probably turned out to be higher than your widow's benefit. But because they checked the box that said claiming all benefits, you no longer have the choice to switch to your own higher benefit that you would get by waiting till age 70. So if someone gave you good advice, boy, that person, bravo. There are a lot of hardworking people at Social Security who just are overwhelmed by the, the mess of their computer systems or don't know the rules. You got the right advice. You wait. You, you collect your widow's benefits if you were married for 10 years. You, you collect widow's benefits. And um, you can also collect your own. But wait till you're 70 when it's much higher. But, you know, why? Why are they doing this? I mean, is this money they're clawing back the difference between making or breaking no, uh, the U.S. No. government budget on a year? No, no, basis? no, no, no. The unfunded liability of Social Security is over $100 trillion. It's, it, that's in the book about what's this all about. Uh, Social Security pays out a trillion dollars a year in benefits. So the fact is that the, this is a drop in the bucket when they come clawing it back, except it's not to the person who doesn't have 29000 or 88000 mm-hmm. and just trying to make it on their Social Security check. That's why it's so obscene. Now, we suspect, and actually, frankly, I've heard uh, from people who've worked there who've contacted me who said, yeah, we're incented not to give waivers. They don't want us to give waivers. Your job won't be secure. But we, I the administrative law judges for- are told not to give to 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 find in favor of the individual and against Social Security because there's a mentality there that they cannot be challenged and Congress hasn't challenged them because rightly or wrongly both political parties don't want to say the word Social Security so they don't get thrown out of office that's a, a different story but so they've been left alone to fester in their own power. And you know what happens when small people are granted big power. Just, you know, walk through through security at the airport and you'll know what happens. When you grant people power over other people uh, and, and so many personalities will abuse it, and that's endemic at Social Security. I understand. You know, this is the kind of stuff that I expect... From a for-profit company, which is why you know we have all these. No, 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 Joan. But but, but no. this is the government. You know this is. No, you've got these people exact. are going to get a bonus. Stop for a second. That's a good point. But let me tell you this: a for-profit company has customer service, and they listen to their customers because if they didn't, they wouldn't have any customers, and they'd be out of business. Yes. For-profit companies are in business to make a profit, but they don't abuse their customers because they would be out of business if they did that. The government is never going to be out of business. These people are never going to get called to task unless all of us, all of us, rise up and say, hey, don't do this to our grandparents. Yeah, maybe you need to fix it. Maybe you need to raise taxes. We can have that other discussion. But right now, do not abuse 
old people and disabled people by clawing back money without explanation and stopping benefits they rely on. They earned and they were told they were supposed to get. That's the difference. Don't, government is not the solution here, Joan. In this case, government is the problem. They're hide behind their walls. They wouldn't talk to 60 Minutes. They abuse little old ladies and disabled people and grandpas too. And they're never called to task because they've got the politicians scared to raise their name. That has to stop. Amazing. We have a caller who wants to join our conversation. Earl is calling in from Hyde Park. Earl, you're on with me and Terry Savage. Go ahead. Hey, thank you for taking my call, John. Thank you, Terry. I've listened to you for a number of years, so I really appreciate what you're doing. But I also think that, uh, like you were saying about the arrogance and so on and so forth, about being a government position, uh, they also have to find ways of uh, bringing in money because they're not getting enough money from the fat cats who uh, don't pay enough in, uh, in, their, in their taxes. So they have to find ways to uh, make up what is not being uh, paid uh, on the backs of the little guy. And uh, so we little people uh, are getting screwed all kinds of different ways because you, you don't care that the fat cats don't really pay uh, what they're supposed to pay because they have all kinds of lawyers that can uh, 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 know the tax code and know how to uh, uh, play the game with the taxes and, uh, and get the best benefits for their uh, clientele. So t- thank you for taking my call, John, and I'm enjoying this conversation. But oh, yeah. well, it's a shame. Yeah. It, it's, it's, Earl, you know I understand exactly what you're saying. And if we want to have a totally different discussion, and I don't want to go there today, yes, they should raise the tax and the limit. You know, it should be the, that Social Security tax should be at a much go up to a much higher bracket. Yes, there's a lot of things that should be done. There is absolutely no justification for abusing people who can't who are the weakest among us. It's just not, in no universe is that right. It's not right that people don't pay their fair share, that people uh, cheat on their taxes, da-da-da-da-da. But there is no, that's not a rationale for collecting that money out of the hides of the the weakest among us. Yeah. You know, you can argue about Social Security and the taxes and how to fund it. In fact, we must, for the sake of our children, we must do something sensible, but this is ridiculous. That the 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 thing, only thing they can come up with is abusing people and stopping their their benefits, just like that. Okay, Social Security wouldn't talk to you. They wouldn't talk to Anderson Cooper. Do you? But clearly, they're paying attention. If the three people highlighted in the sixty minutes reports Ooh, suddenly yeah. all got their situations waived, so somebody's paying attention. Who is responsible? Is there a person? Is there an office? Uh, let, me, is- let, let, let me tell you, you're so right. Somebody is paying attention. Larry Kalkoff had this before. The Congress inadvertently or advertently changed a benefit, on, which was really going to hurt a lot of people. He wrote about it in his Forbes column. And within 24 hours, they changed this. But this is a, a number of years ago. They understand when voters speak up. Now, who runs Social Security? The Treasury Secretary is the chief trustee. There's about to be a new head of Social Security. He's being, it's been held up in Congress, not politically, I think it's just taken a while. The new uh, head of Social Security will be confirmed shortly. And the place that you need to go, and we make it easy for you, 
is the House Ways and Means Committee has a subcommittee on Social Security. They're holding hearings. We have a link at socialsecurityhorrorstories.com for you to contact all the members of that committee. Send them a copy of the link of our book. Take a copy of the picture of it. Send them all an email. When they hear that this is one Social Security problem that, number one, they can fix, and number two, that enough people are steamed about it, they can fix this without getting into the political issues around the bigger issues of Social Security. So socialsecurityhorrorstories.com, watch our 60 Minutes, the links to buy the book on Amazon. We self-publish to make it inexpensive and to get it out there in time for the 60 Minutes story. And we also have a link to contact your congressman. Just put your zip code in. You can find out who it is and say, have you been to socialsecurityhorrorstories.com? Stop abusing grandma. Uh, Terry Savage and I are going to take a break, and she's going to talk more about this when we come right back. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with Terry Savage. You may have just seen her on 60 Minutes. She and Lawrence Kotlikoff have written a book Social Security Horror Stories, How to Protect Yourself from the System and Avoid Clawbacks. And she was telling us about a website they have, socialsecurityhorrorstories.com, which I went to during the break. There are so many horror stories that they actually have divided them up by category. Teachers and the public, child benefits, appeal problems, disabled. Um, it's it's. It's shocking that there are so many and that this problem has gone under the radar for so long. Uh, Terry, tell us about uh, a, a family or a situation where somebody was uh, affected by this, something that uh, Anderson me, Cooper didn't cover. Okay, we gave them, you know, I started keeping track back in uh, spring when the story, when my columns ran. And I gave them numbers. Um, those stories aren't up there yet. When I get a minute, I'm going to put them up. But I, you, your producer said to me, don't find a story that you haven't shared yet. Okay, here's one. This was dated um, May, in May. Hello, Terry. I'm writing on behalf of my mother-in-law. She is Lois is her name. She's the sweetest person you'll ever meet. She was a reading teacher for most of her working years and therefore was not entitled, as we've come to learn, to her deceased husband's Social Security benefit. Remember, she got some small uh, public pension. At the time of his death in 2017, she went to her local Social Security office in Bloomingdale, Illinois, and formed the agent of his death. Six months later, she started receiving a monthly check, which lasted about 18 months. In 2020, she was informed she owed over $30,000 to Social Security for benefits she should not have received. She has filed multiple appeals and to date has not received any communication from Social Security. Thanks for all you do. Hope you can get somewhere. I There's a, a story uh, too long to read, a disability story that starts off, but it's in the book. I mean, the first third of the book is these horrible stories. Ms. Savage, I hope I'm starting off correctly. I finally, in capital letters, and we reprinted these with the typos and the spellings and the explanation, exclamation marks. 
this woman writes, I'm a 62-year-old grandmom, widow for almost two years, raising our two grandkids who we adopted in 2011. They're now 15 and 17. I get disability. Kids get survivor's benefits. Then she tells a horrible story about her husband um, having a fall at uh, construction work and rehabilitation, and he got workers' comp, and then he got approved for disability. Somewhere about 2015 or 16, forgive me, my memory's not what it used to be, he received a letter stating he'd been overpaid by Social Security. He made several calls to find out what the hell, only to be given a runaround. Finally, someone told him computer error. Forget about it. So we did. Phew. Then he was diagnosed with cancer, had surgery, and passed away in 2021. At some point, she says, I applied for our survivor's benefits and got approved. And then it started again, letters about overpayments to kids. For what? Up until last week, nobody would answer that. She said he never told about his workers' comp, so his disability wasn't figured with an offset. And she goes on to write, well, damn sure he did. We even took more than was necessary, papers and forms, and info. When he had his interview, they sent me form to fill out for a waiver so no money would be held out, and it got denied. But a couple, three months went by, I didn't hear anything. And the next month, we got a letter stating they would be holding the kids' checks, all of it, and they did. Each one of the kids, the grandchildren she adopted, checks is more than my two little checks together. It sunk me. I just got my credit cleaned up. Credit score was almost excellent. A little bit of money saved. And I ended up having to go to my credit cards, go to collections, some judgments. Makes my stomach turn. I got behind on everything, going to food pantries. Thank God for them. But we still had our home and our vehicles and some food. And then it happened again. March 3rd, I checked bank. This time, our payday, no, just my check deposit, not the kids. I called them, put on hold for an hour. Only to have the person who answered tell me I called the wrong Social Security number. And she oh. hung up. And it goes on. There's, so the book is Social Security Horror Stories. And you don't think this can happen. These are not dumb people. These are not crooks. These are people who legitimately were given benefits. I mean, it, they were given these benefits. It's Social Security's fault that they didn't, oh, that they, oh, they miscalculated. But now, at this point, when a woman's poor and living on her own disability and she's adopted these grandkids and she's a widow, now you want to stop the kids' checks? What good does that do for society? And by the way, in the law, there's the words equity and good conscience. That was litigated 30 years ago. Social Security, as you saw from Anderson Cooper, has the power in terms of equity and good conscience that's in the law to waive the clawbacks. And they did it because they got publicity. We want them to waive the clawbacks for everyone and start over. If you think a clawback should be held, let's have a hearing. Let's get all the facts out there. Let's have a fair judge and then see what happens. But in the meantime... Pay the people their benefits and stop. They, you know, they'll take your tax refund if you've got one. They'll go into your bank account. Yes, they can force you to sell your home. They, we just got to stop them right now before they start going to that step. Um, Terry, there's um, Len, a retired firefighter, is on the line. He has a question for you. Len, go ahead. You're on with me and Terry Savage. Ask her your question. Yeah. Hi, Joan. I'm a first-time caller. been listening to you for uh, years. Uh, Thanks, hi, Len. Terry. Uh, yeah, hi. I'm a retired uh, firefighter. Um, I've been retired for 12 years. I did 21 years in the fire service as a firefighter paramedic. But now I'm getting my pension. But 
my question to you is before I got hired, I was 31 when I started the job. I had 14 years working as a uh, tradesman, player in construction, uh, paying my dues, paying uh, all of the benefits, and contributing to Social Security for more than 40 uh, quarters. Now, they're telling me if I start collecting the Social Security, I'm not entitled to the full amount because I've got a fireman's pension. To me, that yes. doesn't sound fair. I mean, why, well, why guess do what? do this? Well, okay. So yeah. I'm going to give you the explanation. Then I'm going to tell you what's going on. And then I'll give you the specifics, and I'll tell you what's going on to try and change that. Number one, that's called the WEP, W-E-P. stands for Windfall Elimination Provision. And that was put into Social Security a number of years ago, saying that people who worked in the private sector and also worked in uh, uncovered work, where they didn't deduct FICA, but you got like a teacher's pension or a fireman's pension or something like that, there should be an offset. I can explain how it's calculated. Um, It's very complex. Uh, It reduces your Social Security benefits... It cannot, the reduction cannot exceed half of the monthly non-covered pension, and um, it's, it's a complex calculation, which they obviously get wrong all the time. Now, yeah. if you had worked for 30 years in covered employment, you would not be subject to the WEP. Nobody knew that, of course, when they made decisions to leave you know, business and become a teacher or a coach or a fireman or something like that. So the... If you work for 30 years, your Social Security won't be reduced. But otherwise, it will be reduced on a crazy formula because you have a public pension. Now, as we speak, there are hearings being held. In fact, I just got an email not even an hour ago. Let me just go check my uh, inbox here. That there are hearings uh, going on this week coming up in Congress for H.R. 82. Okay? And it is... They just sent me this. Uh, to repeal the WEP and something called the GPO, Government Pension Offset. It's House Bill Social Security Fairness Act, a bill proposed that would repeal the windfall elimination provision or WEP and the government pension offset that reduces benefits for workers. This legislation is support for many organizations that represent, I'm reading this, public workers including teachers, firefighter, and police. Bipartisan support in the House and has 300 co-sponsors. So, if you want to get the hearing is Monday, in of all places, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, <laughs> but you can talk, you can contact the members of that House Subcommittee on Social Security because we have a link to them on our socialsecurityhorrorstories.com website. They're having a hearing about this very issue of this very unfair offset. And so, because after all, once you started working as a fireman, you weren't paying into Social Security, but you still should get the benefits from what you did pay in. So, by all means, go to SocialSecurityHorrorStories.com. It says contact your Congress uh, representative and send a message. You're a fireman and you're angry. They'll they'll listen. This is, by the way, uh, this is co-sponsors both parties. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I just uh, did that. I went to ho- Social Security Horror Stories, and I clicked your link that said, uh, Find Contact Congress. 
And there's one button where you can see all the members of the Social Security subcommittee. There's another button where you can find and contact your representative in Congress. Um, so, Len, it's SocialSecurityHorrorStories.com. And, and, Terry, if this House uh, uh, Bill 82, the Social Security Fairness Act, if it passes, does that mean across the board no more offsets? Um, no, no, no. Well, I, I don't know what will actually pass. First of all, it says nothing to do with the clawback, but many of the clawbacks were caused because they didn't correctly calculate yeah. the, the, the appropriate reduction based on the law. So it's a big step forward if they repeal that offset. God knows whether they will pay people back whose pensions, whose Social Security benefits were reduced for the last 30 years because of this offset, but and, or what the bill will say about it going forward. But, it's, see, again, they have used Social Security, both parties, to divide us, the people, the American people, and everybody who works. Everybody who works as a state in Social Security so they have used it politically to divide us so they don't have to deal with the big issues about financing it. And meanwhile, we're all getting screwed. We've got to let both parties know not to fool around with this anymore. Mm-hmm. We know what they're doing. It's not political. It's, it, we paid in. And our children are paying in. And they're paying in. And I'm getting the benefit. And I want, now I have two granddaughters. I want them to get the benefit because they'll work and pay in, too. You know, um, I've gotten a couple of texts while we've been on uh, discussing this from people who are basically afraid because, you know, there have been, you know, Rick Scott said that, you know, we should sunset Social Security. And you know, there's a lot of people who depend on it and they're very afraid that uh, there will be some Republican move uh, that takes it's off to get rid happen. of it. And, and the fear is that, Terry, are you rocking the boat? Are you going to put a spotlight on Social Security and how it doesn't work right and give Republicans more ammo to say we should just get rid of it? That's never going to happen. Did you see the president in the State of the Union look down at the Republicans and say, well, uh, we're not going to touch Social Security, right? And they, every <laughs> single one of them, all of them, all of them, all of them, I want to apply a label to them. All of them, not, yeah, right, Social Security's off the table, yeah. That was a masterful piece of <laughs> manipulation <laughs> yeah. on the part of the president. Social Security's not going to be repealed, but it is going to go broke. It's going to go broke, not to the extent that you won't get your check, but that people will get a reduced check. Yeah, there's got to be a lot of adjustments. You know, they back in the early 80s, we adjusted the retirement age. We adjusted the percent, the cap on Social Security earnings. Uh, we adjusted the percentages. And it's time to do that again. We're living longer. Now, how do you want to adjust it? You want to raise taxes and tax more income above the current cap? Yeah, of course so. Do you want to raise the retirement age? Yes, but not for you who are 63. We're going to raise it for the kids who are working today who are 23 or 24 because they're going to live to be 100. So sure, we've got to fix it. And sure, handing anything to Congress to fix is sure recipe for disaster. But we're heading to disaster anyway. And no, I'm not going to stop speaking up because I'm not talking about how to fix it. If someone asks me, I'll give them my opinions. They probably will ask Larry Kolikoff. He's the guru of it all. He's the economist that knows. But the point is, I'm talking about stopping the abuse. 
you know, if, if we found out that public school teachers were in some way abusing young kids, you wouldn't want to say, oh, well, we better not talk about that because we need our public schools. You'd say, root out the abuse. And that's what I want to do. Social Security exists. It's going to keep paying. For the next 10 years, it should not be terrorizing people who are in their 60s and 70s and 80s about sending money back. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Terry Savage and I are going to be taking a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Terry Savage and Lawrence Kotlikoff have a new book out, Social Security Horror Stories. This is where the government messed up, and sometimes for a few months, but oftentimes for several years, paid more Social Security because they miscalculated. And then people who are in retirement, people who are elderly, people who are widowed, people who are disabled, get these threatening letters that say, you have 30 days to pay back this X amount of money that we overpaid you. There is a Social Security subcommittee. If you go to the website they've created, socialsecurityhorrorstories.com, you can click on a button and see the members of the Social Security subcommittee who have the power to do something about this. There's another button that says find and contact your representative in Congress. But, Terry, does it do me any good to contact my representative in Congress if they're not on this subcommittee? Yeah, it's going to do a lot of good to bring to Congress's attention that they can talk about Social Security without having to come up with a you know a huge expansive solution, which we'll have to get around to. But that people are being abused by the IRS, and when you say it like that, first of all, I have to tell you, we heard from many people, and they're telling us their horror stories. Who said, "And I contacted my congressman, but he couldn't help, or she couldn't help." I mean, literally, look. Nobody says, I don't want to talk to you to Anderson Cooper. I mean, really? Do they? Yeah, really? I, I yes, he was that so. nice. Joan, his eyes are that blue. He was so <laughs> nice. It was like sitting around talking with someone I'd known forever. He was great. And he was astonished. He, too, I think, was astonished. Who doesn't talk to Anderson Cooper? So they aren't talking to your congressman either. So if we let them know that this is a big national issue, that Social Security is abusing people unfairly, then that's the kind of thing that transcends politics. That's what Congress likes to do, help people and win their approval and their votes, both parties. So this is not about fixing it or raising taxes or widening this to the retirement age, any of that. This is about making Congress aware that every voter now is aware that they're paying money out of every paycheck. Look at your paycheck. You know what FICA stands for? Okay, here's a quiz before we go have to go off. FICA, you know what that stands for, Joan? Um, federal. Mm-hmm. Insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, it's Federal Insurance Contributions Act. Oh. You're making a contribution, mostly now to Mike, if you're paying in and you're not retired yet. It's doesn't it seem like it's like this voluntary thing? And it was sold that way. We'll have a shoebox in Maryland, that's that, that what they used to say. And that's where your money will be, and it'll be safe. You've been contributing to this for your entire working life. 
everybody has a stake in making sure that the people who work at Social Security don't abuse the people who deserve the benefits. And if they made mistakes, if they were underfunded, if they just got carried away with their own power, so carried away that they won't talk to Anderson Cooper and they won't talk to your congressman, I think it's time for Congress to shake a stick at Social Security. Both parties. Terry, in the past uh, issues that I've cared about, when I've called the office of a politician uh, who doesn't represent me, you know, the staff always answers mm-hmm. the phone, and the first thing they want to know is, like, what's your zip code? And you zip tell them, code. and they realize that you're not a voter. And then you can just hear their, they shut off. They listen to you. They let you talk it out. But, you know, it, you don't get the feeling that they're taking any notes or that your opinion even matters. So... Is it worth getting in touch with a Drew Ferguson or a Mike Carey? Oh, yeah. It, Drew Ferguson is the head of that, so the guy that, that's the head of that Social Security subcommittee. And he will listen if he gets inundated. Larry is such an idealist. For an economist, I mean, my goodness, <laughs> and he's a great economist. He wants everybody, he wants me to tell everybody to buy a book and mail it to their congressperson. And he said to me, think about it. If boxes arrived of this book, you know, just get it on Amazon and, and send it to your congressman's office in the Longworth building or the, this building. He really thinks people are going to go spend $14 and do that. Actually, it's nine ninety nine on Amazon. The nine ninety nine is the ebook. Oh, that's Kindle. So, yeah, Kindle that's right. book. I can't send yeah, that. Yeah, and the paper. But you could send them a link to it. You could send an email with that link in it. And if we do, I mean, we forget the power of the people. Because we're also divided by our our politicians, but I think this is one thing. I, you know me; I've been preaching the savage truth about money for a long, long time. What delights me, I'm sorry, this is happening, but is that I can get as emotional as I want because you know what? I don't have to pull any punches. This affects everybody, mm-hmm. both political parties. Every Congress congressional representative and senator should know we care about it, and they can't shut us up anymore. This is not, I remember Eric called in, he said, oh yeah, the rich fat cats don't pay enough. and they. No, this is not a divisive, this issue about Social Security, this abuse is not a divisive issue. Eric, whoever he is, you know, if his grandmother was a millionaire, would still not want her to be treated that way. She yeah. wouldn't. It wouldn't hurt her so much. She'd probably have the eighty-eight thousand to give back. But that's not the point. If she worked and was told she deserved the benefits, whether she used that, it's all the money she has or whatever. She's legally entitled to it, and they abuse her, clawing it back and stop the checks. That has to stop. That's not the American way. Um, I, I, I agree. And I got to tell you, I'm looking through our, our text line and people are really fired up about this, um, particularly the idea of why do we have a cap on this? You know, um, let's let's take a, a take off the cap or raise the cap and bing, bang, boom. You know, you know, if you're making um, if you know, if you're Mary Barra and you're you know, you're bringing down tens and hundreds of millions of dollars a year, you should pay a little more. I'm sorry. I don't think anybody would object to that. Terry, this a wonderful topic. As always, you are championing the people who really um, need your voice to speak for them. And I am so proud to call you my friend. I just can't. I'm delighted to be your friend. Thanks for giving me access to your, your wonderful audience. I just got an email from someone I knew from years and years ago who was listening in Ohio. You have just a very broad <laughs> audience out there. So... Thank you for this. Look, folks, don't let them divide us. 
Go to SocialSecurityHorrorStories.com, find your congressional representative, find the members of this subcommittee and say, we want you to fix Social Security, and you can start by stopping the abuse. Amen to that. Uh, Terry Savage, you can uh, find her at TerrySavage.com. Thanks again for being here. This is so important. And maybe down the road when they do some things, we can do a follow-up and say, oh, yay, look, this is what they did. And isn't um, it great? Love to dance. Uh, I'll, I'll open a bottle of champagne for us if we make that happen. <laughs> yeah, really. That would okay. be wonderful. <laughs> okay. Thanks, John. Um, thank you. That's going to do it for me. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is next. Remember, Santita Jackson kicks off our day at 6 a.m. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Until then, have a great evening, my friends. Stay safe. Good night. Good night.